South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And a very good morning. <laughs> I guess it's a good morning. Well, every morning is a good morning. But it's another hot morning. Going to be another hot day. What else is new about that? But we gardeners just know we garden early and late. And there's still an awful lot to do out there. And that's what we're here to talk about Uh Live and local, as they say here this morning, after uh, actually a, a week on the road last weekend. But anyway, glad to, really glad to be back. Looks like there is one line left open. Grab it if you want to, 210-599-5555. We're going to start out with Kamala, Al, and Bill. And uh, gosh, so much to talk about, so many fun things. But what's on your mind is what is most important to me. So we'll just start with Kamala. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning um, to you. I have a, I have a, I have two questions. Okay. Um, one that I've been wanting to ask for a long time and one that has come up more recently. So I'll start with that one. Okay. Do you have uh, knowledge of, a, of how to uh, get, get rid of um, or treat the McGay weevil organically? Do you and, know what I'm talking about? Um, I, I know a lot of different weevils. What is this one attacking? Okay, it's attacking the agave, like the American agave. Okay. Or yeah, the best. Of, yeah, the, and it gets in the soil. And right. Everything I've seen tells me pesticides to use, and I want to know your idea. That, I mean, chemicals, you know. The, yeah, the best one to use is going to be spinosad. And you'll just use it as a drench. Uh, Spinosad is a natural product. Um, it's an organic. Yeah, product. Yeah, I know effect. that it would actually, it would work against these guys that are so nasty. Yeah, it certainly would. And and what you'll need to do, uh, depending on how big your agaves are, uh, you mix. It, it, it's going to take a fair amount of it because it won't work to just spray it on. Since they attack yeah. the roots, since they're in the soil, you will have to do a pretty good soil drench. And that's going to be the most effective thing. The other thing you can try, but you have to be careful not to get it too strong, but orange oil and water as a drench um, will most times take care of them. But if you get your orange oil too strong, it'll damage the roots on the agave, whereas uh, the spinosad will not harm the agave in any way so i would start just get some uh, concentrated uh, spinosad uh, captain jack's dead bug or whatever name you buy it under and uh, just mix that according to the directions thoroughly saturate the soil and it should take care of the problem if that doesn't then i'm going to go with a very dilute orange oil maybe a teaspoon per gallon but let's try the spinosad first it should do the job okay is there any way to save the agave that has already been you know where you can see that it's it, it's already killing part of the plant it it's hard to say whether it will save the big plant or not but it will normally save enough of the plant that it will put out new pups kiki it's whatever you want to call them new growth around the base which in turn will grow up and make your beautiful agave 
Okay. It just it depends okay. on how it's whether it's really gotten down into the heart of the agave. Agaves are unusual plants, you know, with their habit of blooming once and then dying. So um, it's and, and that's just the way every agave out yeah. there does. But um, and and what I would do when you when you drench the soil. Begin by just pouring it over the center of the plant. Let it run over and around and between the leaves and then down into the soil so that, in effect, you're getting double duty. Any other insects, and there's several different bugs that can get after agaves, anything that is actually on the foliage or kind of down in the heart of the plant, the spinosad will get take care of those as it goes through on its way to the soil where it's going to go after the weevils. Okay. Well, I'll give that a try. How how and big how big is uh, is the plant itself? How how far from leaf tip to leaf tip, and how tall? Well, I have um, I I have one that looks really b- pretty bad, and the reason I think it's the weevil, I mean, it could just be drying up because it's not where I water or anything. But a couple years ago, I had a weevil, and it took out several nearby mm-hmm. okay. um and that one was already that one lived you know but i yeah and yeah. i um and i thought i had clean i mean i did clean out soil and get rid of it because i know that they can stay in the soil across the sidewalk from that i have another one that i'm that i'm really concerned about that is a pup from an earlier agave uh-huh. that lived 16 years and then bloomed and but this one is pretty big by now. It's maybe oh, um, I would say close to three feet anyway. Um, okay, okay. You're you're going to probably need to make up as much as uh, you know three to five gallons of your concentrate to drench it, just to give you an idea of how much it's going okay. to take. But um, I'm I'm virtually certain that the spinosad will take care of that. And it may take care of, you know, some of the pill bugs and other things that may be, may be down around there as well. So uh, totally safe for you, totally safe for uh, people and pets and uh, beneficials, uh, at least the way you're going to apply right. it. So, uh, yeah, that, that's where I would start. Okay. Okay, well, that sounds like a big project, but it's worth it if I can <laughs> say so, if one of the if one of the um leaves or whatever is already is turning yellow like where I think that it may have already come in, should I cut that off, do you think? Or it will look it will look nicer. I don't think it will make any difference to the plant. Uh it's just you would do that for cosmetic reasons, uh but uh that's strictly but up to the you. The weevil can get inside by my understanding. They can, but weird. usually it's it's very superficial. Uh, they'll make a wound. It's not like they get way down, at least initially, way down into the heart of the plant. So this is why you want to saturate just really thoroughly when you do. It's not it's not something that's going to be, you know, so far in. It's not going to be like a leaf miner or something like that. Okay. Um. And okay, my other question that I I heard probably a couple months ago at the end of a of a question or something you mentioned the conservation easement that you have at shades of green did i did i hear that correctly and 
We are so in the process of we are in the process of creating a conservation easement. We're working with Green Spaces Alliance. Uh, it takes some time, and um, uh, we our, our easement is not completed yet. It's about eighty percent completed. I do have and have had for many years conservation easement on my ranch through the Cibolo Conservancy Land Trust. But uh, here at Shades of Green to protect our property, we're most of the way through with our conservation easement, but it's, it's not quite a done deal yet. Well, my question, because um, I've done one of the workshops at, at the Cibolo, um on that, and I'm familiar with the with it in the rural areas, Um the research I had done so far, it's a lot more difficult in urban areas, and I was wondering what the parameters of that were. Can, is that something that you can do on a business but not on a on a homestead, or can you do it on a homestead? Or well, the the, the, the main criteria? the main thing uh, is the um, the group, the land trust that you choose to work with. Uh, the seminars you've attended, and I happen to be president of the Cibolo Conservancy, uh, we do rural, we are a rural land trust, and we do rural properties. Uh, Green Spaces Alliance is an urban land trust, and right. they do some big properties, they do some smaller properties, but um, the only, you know, the requirement is that, um, uh, that the land have conservable values, and you know I, I can't take the you know hour and a half it would take to have a, a thorough discussion. But many right. many different things uh, constitute uh, conservable values, and if you know in in our instance, uh, you know it would be conserving natural areas in a very urbanized, uh, becoming a very commercialized area. We are also very close to part of the uh, uh, developing trail systems that Howard Peak started around. And, um, uh, you know, we do have interesting species and things here on the property. But uh, um, if you, the, the people to direct your questions to would be Green Spaces Alliance. Uh, I suspect okay, the person great. that, yeah, I suspect the person you would want to talk to there is Clay, C L A Y, Clay Thompson. And he can tell you okay. pretty quickly whether uh, it's it's something that they would be able to work with you on. Okay. And along that line, I don't know if folks have heard that the, there has been a lawsuit for the Breckenridge Park to preserve the religious freedom for a couple um, Native American friends of mine who have who have sued the city of San Antonio with a Jones Law Firm and, <laughs> no, I, and people from UT Austin. So. Yeah, I, I haven't been party to that yet, it but I will came certainly. Out yesterday, the, so yeah. Well, Kamala, I, I appreciate it, but I, I do need to get back to gardening topics here. Okay. And Al well, is next in line. Thank you so much. Good morning, Al. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. There's some kind of bug that has attacked that, put, that builds a, a web on it. And it tends to stick the legs together, or it will roll them and build the webs inside. Okay, that uh, is almost certainly a little caterpillar. Uh, it's uh, it, it where it kind of stitches the leaves together and lays an egg inside. Ultimately, that hatches out and works on the foliage. Um, your your best 
bet is probably going to be a BT product, uh, anything that contains Vaxellus thuringiensis. Add a little bit of molasses to it, um, spray the plant very completely, and you should get that little critter under control pretty pretty easily. It's not, you know, they're not devastating. Whenever everybody tells me webs, I think spider mites, and spider mites are horrible this summer, but where it's actually pulling the leaves together and creating what kind of looks like a little cocoon down inside of it, uh, that's the type of caterpillar and BT will kill it. Uh, it's, uh, it's a stomach poison. The caterpillar takes one bite out of the leaf that has the BT on it, stops feeding immediately, and dies within a few hours. Okay. What, what, what lays the egg that causes that particular one? It is some sort of moth, and I'm not sure exactly which one it is. There are so many of them. Okay. There's also a large uh, mount laurel right over where we have this. It's a, this is a large prayer plant. Yeah. It's uh, now out on the patio, and wow. it's underneath a large mount laurel. Uh-huh. Mount laurel had the same issue. The mount laurel is planted. It's very old, but it's inside of a maybe five-by-five five area surrounded by a large amount of decking. Yeah. Uh, concrete. And how often should I water that Mount Laurel in weather like this? You think? I and and it's been it been in there a long time. You said a very long time. Yeah, I Over would probably, years, probably if if you can water it to the point of just super saturating it, probably once a month is going to be plenty. How how long okay. ago was the deck built around it, or did which came first, the Mount Laurel or the deck? Um, I do not know if they were both here when we bought the house about 20 years ago. Okay, okay. Well, then this is uh, suspect, this is nothing. I suspect, built, I suspect they built the deck first, but I don't know that. Yeah. No, it's, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with the deck construction then. When you get those little caterpillars, and it's a different caterpillar that gets on the mountain laurel, uh, it's a sign that the mountain laurel is stressed, uh, and right. it could easily be stressed by the drought. I would probably... When uh, the next time you water, hopefully, hopefully right after the uh, gardening show's over, <clears throat> but uh, I would probably add either a little bit of Garrett juice or a little bit of Super Thrive or both, uh, just to give the mountain laurel a little bit of uh, you know boost on the root system. Healthy mountain laurel will not get the caterpillars. When we see the caterpillars on there, we know that it is is in stress for some reason. So. Um, uh, the same BTI, you know, BTI is going to take care of the caterpillars, but if we can eliminate the cause as well as the issue, as well as the critter, so to speak, uh, it'll make it easier going further forward, and it probably will not reoccur. Okay, one related question. On the, the BT, is it still good if it's been kept in a hot garage, or should it be kept in a cooler area? It any any product is uh, is best kept at least at room temperature. Uh, old Barney Grimm, who is the man who founded the company that originally became the Greenlight Company, and probably you know one of the smartest men I've ever known. I knew his brother Alton even better. But Barney and I sat down with a list of common pesticides, and he gave me his ex- estimate of shelf life. And on BT, he told me that it probably is 30 years. Now, being in a super hot environment probably has degraded it to some extent. But if it has that long a natural shelf life, I 
I am presuming that it, you know, can stand up to a little bit more abuse than most things. So uh, I would sure use that. Be sure and add the molasses, though, because, and and Barney's one told me about the molasses. He said, I don't know why we and other companies don't put it on the bottle because it makes it about 20 times more effective. Um, So be sure you add maybe a tablespoon of molasses per gallon of finished spray. And um, that way, even if the actual percentage of BT that is viable that's in your container what's there is going to multiply exponentially with that kind of support so um, that's how I would address it okay I've done that actually for several years based on your advice and it has worked beautifully I usually can spray my tomato plants once and it works all (laughs) and you probably follow up with some applications periodically of molasses and that seems to keep uh that's what seems to really keep the bt active on the plant as it grows and uh um, yeah it really does make a difference it's uh it's always fun when we learn these little tricks that help us garden better and oh lord knows this year we need all the help we can get in the garden that's for sure over a number of years bob i've really appreciated your advice and when i followed your advice Sometimes it takes a little bit of time, but it really, really does work. Well, I'm, that's the most important thing. I'm glad it works for you. I appreciate the support, and you call me anytime I can help you. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure always. Thank you. All right, next in line is Bill, and then it will be Lauren. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Bob. Welcome back. We missed you. Well, let me tell you what. When I left, uh, I'd never been to Wisconsin before. And uh, we had two or three reasons for going up there. And uh, daytime highs of 75 degrees and nighttime lows of 61 were very hard to leave behind. <laughs> but uh, it was beautiful, beautiful area. We learned a good deal. And uh, if you're ever looking for a little getaway, it's, uh, it's a pretty nice place to go. Good for you. Well, I had uh, three questions. And, of course, at 530 this morning, I can only remember <laughs> one of them. <laughs> Okay, that's why you write them down. Keep a pad by the by the bedside table, so if you think of it in the middle of the night. But uh, let's get that one, and maybe it'll jog your memory right. on the other two. When we lived in San Antonio, we had a beautiful golden ball lead tree. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we moved up here to the hill country, we planted one. And for the first five years, it was spectacular. And about three years ago, uh, the different branches or almost trunks on it uh, well, the different branches, one at a time, started leaking sap, uh, attracted bugs and, you know, insects. And, and uh, then all of a sudden, that branch, the leaves on the branch turned brown and that branch died. And so I cut it off and then the next one did it. And then the next one did it. And finally, it got so bad, we cut it down last year. Okay. And, and, uh, from the stump, it came back, which surprised us, but now those branches are doing the same thing. I don't, I really don't think I overwatered it. Do you have any idea what might have caused it? When you look at the material that is coming out, is it like a clear material, or do you see anything that looks like a little bit of sawdust mixed with it? I don't see sawdust. It looks like okay. clear material. Okay, then it probably is a bacterial problem. Um, mm-hmm. uh, if if you saw sawdust, I would worry about borers. But uh, 
there are they they get two or three different bacterial issues and it is definitely stress related uh it can be too much water it can be too little water it can be buried too deeply it can be uh uh compaction over the root zone uh probably the best thing i can tell you is uh you know do what howard garrett calls a sick tree treatment uh and you can go to dirtdoctor.com and just you'll find sick tree treatment there and this will really help. But I would begin by making certain that the root flare is exposed. Golden, golden ball lead tree is a good native, but it's not the hardiest thing in the world. It's it's a bit of a wimp in the native in the native plant world. So it will be the first thing to have a problem in the landscape if it's either too wet or too dry. But uh, start by being sure the root flare is exposed. Uh, follow up. Cornmeal is more for fungus than it is for bacteria, but it certainly won't hurt anything. Um, believe it or not, uh, cinnamon is actually a pretty good bactericide, and I, I'm not sure what the best method of application would be. Maybe just you know be agitating it, put some of it in a sprayer, and just agitate it as you spray. But um, the sick tree treatment and its various components are probably going to be the best thing to help you on that. And remember that if this is established tree, it probably doesn't need water more than once a month. Right. Well, the interesting thing is, at least interesting to me, is that uh, the couple who have the ranch pretty close to us had the exact same problem at the same time. Uh-huh. It, it, you know, and like I say, it's stress-related. We see it more commonly on fruit trees, especially plum trees. But uh, golden ball lead tree, you know, the fact that, that you've got two trees showing it at once, is your neighbor's uh, uh, a native tree that was existing on the property, or is it one they planted? No, I think they planted it. Okay. Well, tell them to make certain. Again, natives, as tough as they are, uh, seem to be more rapidly affected by, you know, having soil piled above the root flare than uh, some of the other things, which are technically not nearly as hardy plants. So um, do, you know, it, it's what happens is when you stress the tree by planting it too deep, it can rock along for months or years even, and then when other stressful factors get piled on top of it, all of a sudden the tree starts having problems one way or another and this uh, bacterial issue is one of the problems that shows up like i say and it it doesn't hit all trees but it hits a number of trees so um, again start with the root flare do the rest of the sick tree treatment a uh, little azomite certainly wouldn't hurt anything and uh, let me know how this uh, how this regrowth does for you okay thank you bob and welcome back well, thanks, Bill. I really, really do appreciate it. Uh, let's squeeze Lauren in here before the news break. Uh, good morning, Lauren. Hi, good morning. Good um, morning. I live, I live in Fair Oaks, and I have a couple of uh, Mediterranean fan palms. Uh-huh. And back, back in 2021, um, one of them froze uh, down to the bottom ground, and it's coming back, and one was unaffected. It's a big, uh, thriving palm. And the one that froze down, I've been baiting it during this heat, and it, it's got a, a couple of uh, trunks coming up, maybe six inches. And one of them has, one of these trunks has uh, wilted and died, kind of rotted. And then on the existing one that was unaffected by the freeze, uh, you know, it gets minimal water. It's just huge. And on one of its trunks, 
the um, fronds have wilted and, and died. And I was just going to see, get your thoughts on what might be going on. Is there one? Uh, I thought maybe I overwatered one, but my big one too, it's um, died. Have you ever seen? Have you ever seen any weird beetles around it, or have you ever dug around it and found any giant grub worms? The reason I ask the uh, uh, the one of the longhorn beetles, which is an enormous beetle, and it's the one you know occasionally you'll see like uh, a grub worm that looks like it's on steroids. It's about ten times as big as a usual grub worm. That is one of the few things that will affect palms and cycads uh gets in kind of right down in the heart of the trunk and uh can do serious damage i don't know that's what it is but uh and oddly enough we were just talking with uh uh bill about you know trees being buried too deeply that doesn't matter on a palm tree palm tree has a totally different root structure so that doesn't concern me at all but um it's uh, and the nice thing about uh, Mediterranean fan palms is they can branch from the base. They can suffer a lot of damage and still develop new trunks. But I would uh, I would begin by getting some beneficial nematodes. I like the live ones better than the dry ones. But get whatever you can find and really saturate the base of those plants and the soil around that uh, with your beneficial nematode concoction and that will that it won't happen quickly uh real young grubs it kills them probably within 24 hours but the big old mature grubs um it will take a little bit longer but that would be my first guess because the mediterranean fan palms you know are not as cold hardy as windmills and a few others and the the other thing is that you may have damaged had damage not just in 21 but this last year when we had that really hard December freeze, um, we saw damage to them. But it is just now showing up because of the stress. I mean, spring was not bad at all uh, early on this year. It's just we got you know down to about April and things started falling apart. And it could just be residual cold damage that the plants were struggling through. And then when we got up to these 107-degree days, which we've had too many of, the palm said, I just can't take this anymore, and, and it's suffering. So those are the only two things that I can imagine that would uh, would bother. Uh, what would you, we just call them med palms. But I would, okay. and beyond that, I'd, you know, I'd probably hit it with a little Super Thrive, a little bit of Garrett juice, and uh, there's a good chance that, uh, tell you what, there are two or three more things I'd like to tell you, but I'm going to get Jimmy to put you back on hold, and I'll come back and we'll talk just a little bit more right after news here on KTSA Radio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. And we do have, I believe, one line left open. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more with Lauren, and then it'll be Michael and Mike, and maybe you right after, but... Lauren, the, the thing I wanted to tell you on, you know, on these growths that have started to wilt, take hold of the center frond. You know how the fronds always come out just right in the center where it's beginning to come up? Yeah. And give it a gentle tug. If it pulls away, um, that truck's done for. Uh, but it okay. can branch from the base. If it still feels, you know, firmly attached in there, then it can potentially perk up and continue to grow. But 
in the in the case of you know many palms like a windmill or uh, Phoenix, some of these different ones, uh, that is really the only live spot in the whole thing that uh, things grow from is that one spot right down where the new fronds are coming out. In the case of a palm that branch, branches from the base, like Phoenix Robolini or like your uh, Mediterranean fan palm, um, that part right up at the top. That's the only part of that particular trunk that's alive. So you're going to be able to tell pretty quickly whether or not the little ones that are showing the stress are going to perk up or not just with that sort of that tug test right in the center. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. So so could I have overwatered the one that is growing back from the bottom, from the ground? Well, understand... Um, and, and, you know, everybody listen carefully to this. There is no such thing as overwatering, but there is watering too often. And when you water, there's no way on earth that you'll ever put too much water on at one time. But you do want to wait until the soil has dried to the proper point before you water again. And the reason is water doesn't hurt anything. But, uh, you know, and if somebody took and stuck my head in a bucket of water for 10 minutes, it wouldn't be the water that killed me. It would be the lack of oxygen. Okay. The only way that watering too frequently hurts things is that when the soil becomes saturated with water, it drives the oxygen out of the soil, and the plant's roots die from lack of oxygen. Uh, plant's roots are totally unlike the top. Top of the plant takes in carbon dioxide, gives off oxygen. Uh, roots have to have oxygen and give off carbon dioxide. So the only way that you would have water issues is if you have watered so often that you have kept that soil just wet to the point that it's forced all the oxygen out of the soil. Again, little Garrett juice, little Super Thrive will help the roots become reestablished. Okay. And um, can I ask another question? Go right ahead. Um, so on my property, I've got uh, several live oaks, but I also have an assortment of these other uh, trees that are growing wild, like a, I think there's some hackberry and uh, maybe it's a some sumacs okay. and this other I, I think it's a gum bromelia uh-huh, very good your thoughts on these which you would encourage I kind of just want to have some backup with my live oaks and oak wilt in the area what your thoughts are on these other ones that are coming up and are grow, already growing wild on my property well my old friend Alton Graham used to say there's no such thing as a good plant or a bad plant all plants have some good characteristics and some bad characteristics. So Gumbumelia, uh, a wonderful tree, excellent, excellent native tree. But for whatever reason, porcupines seem to love it. If you have porcupines in the area, I've seen them girdle Bumelias on my own property. They're, porcupines are one of two things I shoot on site, porcupines and wild hogs. But uh, other than that potential issue, Bumelia is an outstanding tree. Um if you have, uh, did you say any of the elms coming up? Do you have cedar elms? Uh, oh, I have a couple of cedar elms and um, and then some sumac too. I think. Well, sumac is sumac can be invasive. You have to be sure you yeah. like. Now, is what you have the small round leaf evergreen sumac, or is it the broader leaf flame sumac that gets you know gorgeous color in the fall? I think it's the one that it, it's kind of a. Very uh, a lot of lot of leaves on the the twig, and it gets red in the fall. Okay, uh, that is flame sumac. 
it may make a semi it, it might grow 10 feet tall it may make a small tree but it's certainly not going to be a shade tree um there are folks who consider it invasive who planted it in their yard and wish they hadn't afterwards uh, if you're listening up in San Marcos, you know who I'm talking to. But anyway, uh, sumac is, if you if it's out in the open, it's certainly not a bad plant. And some of our best fall color you'll find anywhere. Um, and which others did you mention? Um, and the, uh, there's some hackberry, and there's a couple cedar elm, and I, I love those cedar elm out there, too. Yeah, but cedar elm I, is... I got a lot of hackberry coming up, too. Well... Hackberry, oh gosh, what can you say? Uh, to me, it's one of the biggest weeds out there, and I hate hackberries because then they come up by the hundreds in fence lines and places that they're very difficult to control. I would never have one close to a building or anywhere I park my car or anything else because they can sit there and grow for 50 years, and when they decide to die, they will start dropping 1,000-pound limbs just left and right. And um, I, I've seen them grow from being a beautiful 30-inch caliber tree to being a dead trunk in less than a year's time. So out in the open, I guess maybe it's good that the birds like the seeds, but that means the birds are going to plant them everywhere. So uh, it's certainly not a plant that I would encourage. Now, if you like it, uh, on my ranch 100 years ago, they cut down oak trees to plant hackberries because they were the newest and latest and greatest, uh, you know, thing around uh, coming out of China and who knows where else. But um, I, I would not encourage hackberries. If you've got them, you've got them. You'll be, you have a lot of trouble eliminating them. If you want to uh, look at another big shade tree that you might consider planting just to encourage that diversity, uh, look at what is called an escarpment cherry. Um, okay. Not going to make edible cherries, but that is a wonderful native tree that uh, you know grows wild around my ranch, which I'm you know very very happy to have. And uh, uh, are you in the hill country? Is where you're located? Yeah, yeah, in Fair Oaks. Okay, okay. Uh, if you're in a part of Fair Oaks that has deep soil, look at Lacey's Oak. Uh, it's a not not it's named for an old German naturalist named Lacey. It's where the name comes from. But uh, excellent, beautiful, uh, deciduous tree uh, and very resistant to oak wilt. Uh, bur oaks will certainly grow in that area. And uh, those would be other trees that I would encourage that, uh, you know, can do fine. Once they're established, they will pretty much take care of themselves. The so-called Mexican live oak, Quercus polymorpha, um, is also oak, oak wilt resistant and um, I know people that have planted them, and even in this severe drought, once they've become established, they've needed no help whatsoever. So those are other trees that uh, you might consider. Realize that if you actually plant the tree, uh, you're going to have to provide it with some supplemental water, and even trees that may have sprouted on their own from acorns or seeds or whatever, some of those things are suffering, and in the drought that's just severe. So anything you really like, if you have a way to supplement the water, you can. But of the ones you mentioned, hackberry is the only one that I would say don't encourage that one. wouldn't bother my okay. feelings at all if every hackberry on my ranch died. I wish okay. it would. <laughs> but I know it's not going to happen. There's just going to be 10,000 new ones for me to have to cut down. In my opinion, they're worse than the cedars. Okay. Well, I sure appreciate you, and thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Appreciate the call, Lauren. You have a great weekend. You too. And let's see. Let me check my time here. 
Uh, Michael, let me and Mike, let me get a quick break in here so we don't get behind. Looks like I get to talk about Medina Agriculture and uh, had the real pleasure of visiting with Stuart Frankie recently. And Medina is just one of those companies that the better I get to know them, and I've known them for not all their 50-some-odd years in business, obviously, but uh, they just have done so many things to help plants grow by working with nature rather than opposing it. Uh, Medina, their products are natural. Some of them are certified organic, but there is nothing in there that's going to work against nature. I can't think of a single thing that uh, Medina makes that I wouldn't be all in favor of your using if you have a specific need for it. That includes their fertilizers. Uh, need to know, you know, what they're appropriately used on. Has to grow lawn is for grass. Has to grow plant is for just about everything else. The growing green, they're two different formulations, but both of them are natural products that uh, do not have to be watered in that work where the plants get 100% of the nutrient in there. That's a big problem with so many synthetic fertilizers. Not only do they damage the microbial life in the soil, but the plants only get a small percentage of the nutrition that's in there. The rest of it just uh, leaches away. Not with Medina. Everything in their fertilizer remains in the soil until the microbes and the plants need it and use it. And, of course, they make great products like their soil activator. They package the best in orange oil and molasses and things like that. They also have a great microbial product, uh, active microbes, that uh, you can buy very reasonably priced. It will help just about everywhere. Just know that Medina is a great company. If you want to see all the things they make, go to medinaag.com. If you want to find their great products, visit any good nursery and tell them you want products from Medina Agriculture. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, next three callers are Michael, Mike, and Tim. Michael is first in line. Good morning, sir. Hey, good morning, Bob. How are you, sir? Uh, it's uh, just another hot morning, but uh, glad to be back in good old Texas. Absolutely. Listen, two quick, uh, well, maybe not so quick, but anyway, two questions for you here. I'm calling one for, one of the questions is for my son. He and his family live down in Driftwood, a little south of okay. Austin, okay. and then uh, one for me. Uh, their, their question is, they recently put in, had installed a uh, in-ground swimming pool. And uh, their pool is about 15 to 20 feet from their fence line, which is a, kind of a metal fence. Anyway, they're wanting to put in, uh, hopefully, they say, some Mexican sycamores. And they, their concern was that uh, if they put those in, in that space between the 15 to 20 feet space between the pool and the fence, would the root system of the Mexican sycamore, is it such that it could possibly be a problem uh, with the pool that's in ground there. So it's, it's a fiberglass. It's not uh, uh, the other kind of stuff. But, you know, uh, a, be a, problem. a tree is going to grow its roots wherever there is moisture. Uh, if I could stay 10 feet away from the pool, I wouldn't be at all concerned. Now, there's going to be an issue with leaves. There's going to be an issue with those big old fuzzy seed balls that they make. But uh, if they could stay closer to the fence than to the pools, I would not have any concern with it at all. And, uh, so minimum 10 feet, you think? I think minimum 10 feet. I wouldn't want to plant anything closer about the, than that anyway. I, to, I told him about the big leaves. I think he knows about, knows about that, and he says he's not too concerned about that. They're big enough, not like live oak leaves, so he could get them out <laughs> really easily. Yeah, so, let's ask him about that about 10 years from now and see if he still feels uh, the same way. But, uh, <laughs> no, I know he's looking for quick shade, and uh, um, staying that far away should not be an issue. 
And just for so he has options, uh, are there other trees that might – he wants these trees placed in that vicinity uh, to provide uh, shade from the western sun. Sure. And so uh, any other options that might be good choices? Well, the thing about Mexican sycamores is so fast-growing. I mean, it will make mm-hmm. a bigger tree faster than anything I've ever seen you know, in good quality trees. I'd never plant an Arizona ash or Chinese tallow or something like that. If I was looking at other good quality trees that are moderate in their growth rate, uh, my next two choices would be cedar elm and um, what they call the Mexican live oak or Monterey oak. Uh, it's a whole different family of oaks which, you know, don't get oak wilt and uh, are a little bit faster growing than other quality trees like bur oaks and some of those. So uh, the beauty of the, you know, the Mexican sycamore is just that it will make a big tree very, very quickly. Uh, If it were my backyard, I like color, and I would look at uh, a couple of the bigger growing varieties of crepe myrtle. Uh, Probably the biggest, the big, is a pink one called Basham's, B-A-S-H-A-M-S, Basham's Party Pink, and that'll make a 30-foot tree and give you beautiful color all summer long and then of course drops its leaves in the winter so you probably appreciate having a little bit of sunshine out there to warm things up but uh those are other trees that i would certainly consider okay all right very good my question was had to do with that we had not too long ago had some cherry laurels placed in our yard it's along a fence line on the side yard pardon me and uh but they have just not done well. They put, we've had them put in by, by a group of folks we've done business with before who've done pretty good work. And, and I'm not criticizing their work itself, but the plants, once they're, once they're in, we've watered them, not too much, but enough. And I'm talking about even before the drought came in, I mean, before the, uh, before the 100 degree, triple digit weather came in. Yeah. So um, your, your family lives in Driftwood. Where, where do you live? Well, we live in San Antonio, kind of on the north yeah. side, a uh, little bit, just barely inside 1604, Bitters Road, 1604 area. Cherry laurels, yeah, cherry laurels, just not a good choice. Um, it's just, uh, if you were up in Dallas, if you were up in a little bit deeper soil area, cherry laurels a beautiful plant. But I, <clears throat> I mean, how many big cherry laurels do you see around San Antonio? And the answer is very few. Now, if you're down in Terrell Hills, if you're down in King William, where you had really deep, much better soil, uh, cherry laurel would be, you know, not a bad choice. And there's a little compact one called Bright and Tight. This real pretty little plant. But just use sick tree treatment, pray that the weather's going to cool off, and don't plant any more cherry laurels. They're just, in my opinion, not a very good plant for this area. I got to say, when you look at them, you see more of the uh, the, the, tr- the structure, the skeletal frame of the tree itself than leaves. It's been dropping leaves like crazy. And oh, yeah, just, uh, yeah. It, it doesn't like 107 degrees. And it doesn't like our real alkaline calcareous soils. Mulch it heavily. Be sure that the root flare is exposed. Be sure that when you water it, you saturate it. I would I would be putting some compost around it. I would be putting some azomite around it. Uh, it's just the combination of the high temperatures and the not-so-good soils. But it's not anything you're doing or failing to do. It's just not the hardiest plant that could have been planted out there. Sounds like kind of a high-maintenance plant for this area. Maybe I need to change them out. Uh, that's one reason we don't sell them. <laughs> it's, uh, old Althagram was one that used to tell me when I'd come up with some plant I thought was a great idea. He'd say, well, how many of them have you seen around here? And I'd say, well, you know, hardly any, Alton. And he'd say, well, don't you think there's a reason for that? 
<laughs> so I, I, I'm sorry to say it, but I'm, I'm sorry that, uh, that somebody talked you into that choice because um, I, you're just in a tough area to try to have a pretty cherry laurel. Uh, up in Driftwood, uh, you might do much better up there, but not in North San Antonio. Yeah, our soil is pretty thin here. Listen, Bob, I appreciate your information very much. We'll act accordingly, and you have a great day. You do the same, sir. Thank you so much. Uh, next in line is Mike. Good morning, Mike. Uh, good morning. How are you doing, Bob? I'm off to a good start. I hope you are as well. Great. Yeah, well, finishing up a night shift job, so going home to get some rest. Um, question about crepe myrtles. Um, live on um, the north side, 1604 and 281. Mm-hmm. I had six of them uh, in the front yard. Been there. I've been in the home for over 20 years, and they were there when I got there. They were 15, 18 feet tall, beautiful trees, until we've had the two bad winters that we had, and about half to three-quarters of the tree of each of the trees died. So I went ahead and cut them down with the intention of replanting this fall, mm-hmm. but now all of them are re-sprouting from the ground, and I'm just wondering, should I let it go, or and will they eventually grow as they were, or should I just continue on with my plan of replanting. Uh, you'll never get rid of them unless you get in there with a backhoe. There's no reason they can't, you know, come out and make beautiful plants once again. They're going to be more bushes than they will be trees unless you give them a lot of time and a lot of pruning. But uh, once again, and I realize they've been in a lot of years, but sometimes it takes a lot of years to show up. Crepe myrtles are the number one plant out there for being buried too deeply. So do go excavate around them and be sure that there's no soil piled against the root above, you know, where the roots flare out. And uh, again, go to Howard's uh, DirtDoctor.com and follow his, what he calls the sick tree treatment. Uh, Follow that up with some very thorough, thorough deep watering and keep them moderately heavily mulched. I, crepe myrtles are a hardy plant, but as dry and as hot as we've been, I'm seeing crepe myrtles suffering and in some cases dying just from uh, lack of adequate water. So uh, when you water, really, really, really soak and, um, you know, don't do it too often. But, uh, again, I'd expose the root flare uh, and I think, you know, good water, good fertilizer, same organic stuff you put on your grass, and those things uh, will come up. You may even have some blooms falling by the end of the summer. You may want to go through and thin them out because when they come back from the base like that, you know, sometimes they'll make just a, you know, a bird's nest of growth. You may have 20 different sprouts coming up, and you'll want to thin those down to, you know, three or four of the strongest ones. But uh, at this point, uh, I certainly wouldn't go to the trouble and expense of trying to get the old ones out and put new ones in. If you want to add some, wait till about October or November, and you can certainly, you know, increase the number you have. But uh, with little care, I think these are going to come back for you just fine. All righty. Well, I appreciate the, the help on that. Thank you very much, and we enjoy the show. Well, I appreciate the call this morning, Mike. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. I think we have time to take another one for our next commercial break. We're going to talk to Tim, and then it will be Marie. Good morning, Tim. Uh, good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Hey, up and at him. Uh, I uh, dug uh, two four-foot single palms yesterday. Good. Uh, in, our, in Claire Allen area that some other things are going into. And I'm kind of wondering uh, what to expect and uh, re- 
re-putting them in the ground in a different location. Uh-huh. Regard the foliage that's there, is all of that going to die back? Uh, I didn't get, I did not get any soil. I took all the pups off, and uh-huh. the thing was at the bottom were just some kind of large kind of uh, finger things coming out, going down, not lateral, but going down. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to, uh, of course, I have some stakes to hold them up. Yeah, but uh, yeah. You're going to lose some of the fronds. In fact, I might go ahead and cut off maybe half of the fronds, the oldest fronds, just because this weather is going to be stressful to them. But you picked exactly the right time of year to transplant sagos. Should not have any problem with survival. Um, I, the little pups that you took off, if you want to start more, you certainly can. I helped a fellow one time with one or we took like 35 pups off the base and planted them up individually and I think 34 of them grew so if you want to have more sagos you certainly can if you have puppy dogs keep them away from everything related to a sago they're one of the most toxic plants in the world to dogs so don't let your don't let your uh, your, your canine friends chew on any part of them or any of the pups you took away but um, your big plants should do fine they will go through some stress but uh, the nice thing is the soil's hot. You should get uh, very quick regrowth on them, of the okay. roots. They're going to be in uh, there with some other palms that have done well, and it's all, mm-hmm. almost uh, full shade. Mm-hmm. So it's not as stringent as the other yep. one. Well, realize that they are not palms. Uh, people call them a palm because they look like a palm. More properly, they would be referred to as a cycad, C-Y-C-A-D, uh, as plants go in geologic time, uh, they predate true palm trees by millions of years. They're one of the oldest plants on Earth and one of the toughest. But um, I don't base too much about the way a cycad grows based on how palm trees do. Okay, appreciate that. So uh, as, as far as the depth uh, to replant them, plant them at about the same depth as they were? Try to stay about the same depth. Um, they, the structure of their stem would be wonderful. I had a blackboard and could diagram this for you. But the, they are a monocot. The structure of their stem is totally different, and they are not nearly as seriously affected by being buried too deeply. But having said that, um, I, I certainly wouldn't be you know, putting it down like a telephone pole or a fence post in a hole. Try to keep the soil level roughly the same. Okay, good. And uh, any other nutrients I ought to add to get Super Thrive or water? Yeah, I would do some. I do some Super Thrive, and I'd probably do some Garrett juice as well. And like everything else, um, even though they have you know very waxy leaves and you know that hard trunk, they will absorb some moisture through the foliage and through the trunk. So uh, at least as long as the weather stays as horribly stressful it is, it is. Every chance you get, just put your thumb over the end of the hose and just, you know, spray down, uh, just wet down the top and the trunk of uh, of your all the sagos. Okay. Well, I harvested a buku of pups and some other ones that had frozen back but came back from the roots. But I'm not going to do anything with them. But I know disposing of those kind of things uh, through the uh, garbage system is very difficult. You have to find a special location to get rid of those things. Well, not not really. Uh, they they could go out. Uh, they go in the compost pile. They go anywhere. The dogs aren't going to get them. I'd be willing to bet that uh, if you put a bucket of it on the curb and put a sign on it that said "Free Sagos," it'd be gone before the afternoon was over. 
That's a good idea. Well, as usual, I appreciate your help. Thank you very much. You're certainly welcome, Tim. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right. Better get a break in here. Marie is going to be next. Looks like I get to talk about Connecticut, which is one of my favorite subjects because I see so many people have problems with the standard water softeners, those plug-in models that run on electricity. You know, if the power goes off, your softer, your water softener stops working. And uh, a lightning strike, power surge, things like that can actually burn out the electronic components of a, many kinds of water softeners, and that's an expensive repair. If you, gotta say, if you have a Kinetico, though, you don't worry about that because the Kinetico doesn't plug in. It runs on the kinetic energy in the water, hence the name Kinetico, and you don't have to worry about power surges or outages or lightning strikes. Your Kinetico is just going to sit there and go right on doing its job of giving you wonderful soft water. Another difference is they don't have a built-in computer that tells them when to recharge the rosin. They recharge only when they need to recharge, and that's going to save you salt, going to save you water, going to save you money. You're never going to run out of soft water because it is a twin tank system. I just love the way Kinetico operates. I love the way they do business. I love my Kinetico that I've had for, gosh, 15, 20 years now. If you'd like to learn more, you can check them out online at KineticoSA.com, or you can always give them a call at 210-656-PURE. If you're in the market for a water softer, Kinetico would be a good choice. They'll even let you try it for a couple of months before you have to pay for it. Kinetico. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on a, it's going to be another warm day, but uh, <laughs> that's the way it is in South Texas in August. It's just more of it than usual this year. Next in line to talk is Marie. Good morning, Marie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I have two questions. Okay. Uh, number one, does uh, has to grow have to be an opaque bottle? I have a gallon, and I would like to put that in something smaller. You put it in anything you would like to put it in. Just label it carefully so you don't mistake it for root beer or something like that. <laughs> okay, you, can put it, okay. you can put it in glass. You can put it in uh, plastic. It is non-reactive. Uh, I don't think I'd put it in you know, uh, a paper carton of any sort, but uh, uh, feel free to, to put it in whatever you like. I would, you know, all things are best if kept out of direct sunlight, but uh, it certainly doesn't have to be an opaque bottle. Okay, thank you. Uh, and the last one is, my pecan trees are loaded, and I really hate to see them drop. How much water do you think I need to apply, and exactly where do I position the hose? Next to the trunk or out to the canopy or what, you know, so I can... Get the best use of my water. Well, a little ways in between. Um, research, my arborist friends tell me, has shown that the tree takes up the majority of its water no more than 10 to 15 feet away from the trunk. The further out roots certainly take up nutrients, and that's going to occur best, you know, when there is some moisture in the soil. But uh, a pecan is a very deep-rooted tree. It doesn't have a true taproot, but it has a big bulbous underground structure that is very much like a taproot. So keep your watering closer to the trunk. And uh, how how big is this pecan? How how thick through is the trunk? Uh, very probably twelve inches. Uh, okay. 
Yeah, it's, it's so it's still a, a fairly young tree. I, you know, no, I've. It's about thirty years old. It's probably okay. bigger than that. Okay, um, just it it would be impossible to give that tree too much water. You might bankrupt yourself trying to do it. But yes, um, I would like to do this the cheapest way. But still right. Effective. Well, collect you know collect water from alternative sources. Uh, on my air conditioner, it's amazing in this heat how much what we call condensate, how much water your air conditioner generates. And I simply you know fitted the out. You know, little output tube thing where all that water drips out. I fit, you know, adjusted it so that I could attach a hose to it, and all that water goes over to my flower beds, and I virtually never have to water in the summer months. So um, that's a good alternative source. Gray water, now don't, you know, black water is, is what comes out yeah. of the sewer. But gray water out of your bathtub, your washing machine, so long as you're not using a bunch of bleach, uh, your shower, if you are able to collect that water, it's great water for your landscape, and uh, you certainly don't have to be paying saws for um, all the water you want to put on that pecan tree. But Do you think I, 400 gallons is helpful or, or just not even start there? I need Oh, no, that would that, be a good start, and be sure you apply it slowly so it soaks in thoroughly. That's You know, that's a lot of water when... If I had a if I had a mind to, I could calculate how many how many inches of rainfall that would correspond to over a given area. But uh, that's a lot of water, and that you know that will help your trees. I would try to do it oh every two or three weeks if you possibly can. But and I I have to tell you that will be wonderful for the trees. But don't expect a great pecan crop. Um, just no matter how much we water uh, the the Meat is not going to fill out the pecans as well as it would in more moisture. Now, the good news is that the pecans themselves are still developing, and there still is the potential. I went through, what has been, two weeks ago, I guess. I was driving through Fair Oaks on my way up through the hill country and ran into a torrential rain. It didn't cover a very big area, but people got two and three inches of rain if they were under the right cloud. And here's hoping that uh, one of those clouds moves over you and moves over my ranch, too. So uh, um, I, I wouldn't give up on hoping for a good pecan crop, but I I wouldn't be planting too many pecan pies until we see how the next couple of months of weather go. All right. Thank you so much, Bob. Always a pleasure, Marie. Thank you for the call. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Next in line is uh, is John. Good morning, John. Good morning, Bob. I Good got morning, sir. Jim, I got Jim Dandy coming to the rescue. I got, <laughs> touch, I got in touch with David Vaughn, and, and we're going to come out here and look and see what we can do for these oak trees. But I want to tell you what uh, the power company came through and dropped uh, some uh, brochures off here. Important, this concerns your property tree work coming and they're going to um i didn't have their brochure when i found out about it but i flipped out right away um and found out consequently here that they're going to use drones to spray the lines have you ever heard of this before to spray the lines they're going to yes. spray some yes. sort of defoliant yes and i have and never AEP is the company, 
and uh, it says AEP Texas contractors are licensed applicators and will use herbicides that are registered by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and your state regulatory agency. Uh, do you trust them, people? No, absolutely not. I don't trust anybody that is going to use a synthetic herbicide of any sort. Uh, well, without without reading their their uh, brochure, uh, it doesn't even say that they're going to use uh, uh, drones. But they hmm. uh, apparently somebody found out that they are. Uh, what about drift? Number one, uh, what is the product? Number two, uh, what is the study on that? Look what they're doing with uh, Roundup. Oh, I know, I know. Um, yeah, don't get me started there. Uh, I would have no idea. Uh, you need to contact the company, and you know. uh, it gives it. I, I wanted to do some uh, preparing before I called them. Sure. And uh, sure. Uh, Senator Cocor's office uh, is also calling them. <laughs> that, this is this is a craziest scheme I think I've heard of in a long time because. You know, there very definitely is an issue for herbicide drift. At the very minimum, it's going to hurt a whole lot more than the portion of the tree, uh, you know, that the power lines are concerned with. And I understand that, uh, you know, that, that you can't have bare wires. And, and most people don't realize, but most of our power lines are basically just bare metal. And you can't have those rubbing against limbs and things for a number of reasons. But the idea of spraying a tree with herbicide as a method of pruning, to me, is... You have options. You have uh, mechanical options, and there's no substitute for hard work. You defoliate with uh, chemicals. The branch is still going to be there harder now, whipping against the uh, lines in the wind. And may just regrow. And drier, and it's going to start uh, fires more easily. It's just there's so many options available. Yeah. Why do we have to do that? It, why can't we use vinegar and orange oil in the drone? Yeah, there's, there's no reason you couldn't. It'd burn the foliage off, but again, it's just a temporary fix. Now, I appreciate you uh, you informing me of this. That's the first I've heard of uh, anybody doing that, and I think it's an absolutely horrible idea. And I would, uh, uh, you know, I would tell them in the strongest possible language that they will be sued for any problem caused by herbicide drift, and if they impact the overall health of the tree, um, you know, trees, you know, you you can tell them it's two hundred and fifty dollars an inch if you kill my tree, um, you know, a, a circumference inch. Uh, uh, anyway. I, you know, I, high. I know the yeah. litigation. <laughs> DBH, <laughs> diameter of breast height, is exactly right. Now, that's the first I've heard of it, John, and I think it's a horrible idea, and I would fight it tooth, you know, every way you possibly can. Thanks for the help. Please help us. I will, I will do so, and uh, I'll probably have the discussion with Howard Garrett a little bit later this morning, see if he's heard anything about it, but... Uh, Get out and have the best day possible, <laughs> and uh, I, I, I would legally don't think I could tell you to shoot down a drone, but, you know, there are some very, very 
strong laws out there because of the abuse <laughs> that some people have done with drones. So uh, tell them it better not go over my house on the way to a tree because <laughs> I've got anti-aircraft out there. But anyway, no, I, I say that somewhat jokingly, but uh, um, there's some pretty strict uh, rules and, and probably people you could check with about uh, um, the legality of people flying drones over your swimming pool and your other property other than your power line area. So I think you've got a lot of research to do there, and uh, keep me informed on how it goes. 10-4. Thank you so much, sir. We'll talk again. All right. Uh, it is uh, It's time that I get to talk to you for a moment about uh, my good friend Rhonda at Rhonda's Nature's Way. That's just I love talking about Rhonda's Nature's Way. I was out there. Uh, just, well, recently before this last trip, picking up some of the many things that I get from Ron. And, uh, they're just, it's so important this time of year, especially if you're going to be on an airplane or be in a crowded gift market or things like that. There's still a lot of COVID out there, and it's really important that you keep your immune system strong. And I tell you, I rely on things that I get from uh, Rhonda for immune support. It's, uh, uh and there's some other wonderful things. <laughs> I just, there's so many so many supplements out there that do help us, especially as we age. And everything Rhonda does is just so much better quality than anything you're going to find on a grocery store shelf or a chain pharmacy shelf. And uh, she has the knowledge, too. You talk to her staff and uh, or Rhonda herself, and she will help you figure out what's best to just maximize your good health and the way you feel. They're natural cures for everything from chronic pain to stomach issues to sleep issues. Rhonda knows them all. Plus, trying to lose some weight, let me tell you, she has some wonderful things that still taste sweet. If you've got a sweet tooth, you can have things that taste good with no sugar and no artificial sweeteners whatsoever. I could go on and on. She also practices reflexology there at the shop, at the store. She uh, practices the beamer light therapies, the red light therapies. I was actually at a convention yesterday where they were talking about light therapies. Uh, and if you don't know about Rhonda's Nature's Way and you really value your health, well, you ought to go see them. Open every day except Sunday and major holidays. Located in the shopping center there at the corner of I-10 and Callahan. Kind of across the parking lot from Sprouts. You know, I give a lot of credit for the energy, for the good health that I have to Rhonda and Rhonda's Nature's Way. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Jeanette is next in line. Good morning, Jeanette. Good morning. How you doing? Off to a good start. <laughs> I got a couple of questions here. When you dig up your irises, um, do you have to plant them right away, or can you wait a while, or can they lay dormant for a while and dry out, or they they can or certainly put them in they, they can they can certainly dry out. Um, the sooner you replant them, the stronger they will come out, and the better it will be for a for the plant. But um, if you do need to store them for a while, be sure that they stay dry. Be sure that they're not piled, you know, up on top of each other. And if I were going to store them, I would take a pair of scissors and I'd cut the roots back to about three inches long, and I'd cut the leaves on the top down to about three inches long so they don't dehydrate too badly. Um, that, and if you do that, you could store them in a cool, dry place for months if you had to. 
but um, and and I would trim back the tops and the roots uh, in any event. But uh, just you know, keep them somewhere that's uh, room temperature or even a little bit cooler, and uh, be sure they stay dry and just replant them as soon as you can. Okay. The next thing is uh, I have a dry spot in my in my grass, uh-huh. and I don't know if it's grubs or what it is. But how do you tell if it is grubs? And I know beneficial nematodes is the best way to get rid of them. Oh, you're way ahead on things. Um, the best way to judge if it's grubworm damage is to and, and do you have St. Augustine? Is that what sort of grass you have? Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. It, go down and pull up, lift up on the runners. Uh, if the runner lifts away from the ground, then it's grubs. Well, that's what the how the grubworms do their damage. They actually cut the roots, and you'll find long runners that have few, if any, roots holding them to the ground. Um, how big an area is this that's affected, and is it round or is it irregularly shaped? Uh, it's irregular, and it's about two bathtubs, kind of, you know. Okay. and And about how large? About two bathtubs. Oh, bath two bathtubs. Okay, <laughs> that's an interesting yeah. term. unit of measurement. Um, it could easily be grubs. It could be a fungal issue. Um, we don't see as much fungus this time of year. Uh, wouldn't hurt to put a little cornmeal down just to be on the safe side. But uh, if you, I, <clears throat> I think you're probably going to find that it is grubs and. I guess if there's any good news, the grubs that did the damage are through doing any eating. They're buried up deep in the ground just waiting for next spring to come out and become June bugs and start the process all over again. So this is not something you need to rush to do. And don't be surprised if the area gets a little bit bigger because there will be more grass where they've cut the roots, but the top hasn't died back yet. But... um, do determine, you know, do try to figure out so exactly if, what if it is. you do pull up the run, runners and there's no roots on them, that's probably grubs. Is that, yes. am I saying that right? Or? Yes, yes. Either no roots or very few roots on them, that's definitely going to be grub worms. I would not get bulk compost, but bagged compost is going to be a little bit more mature, so to speak. And uh, spreading a half inch of, or so of that over the area will help the grass come back better than anything you could do. And also, you never water at night. You, But what about your flowers? Can you water your flowers at night, or is that the same rule for that, too? Well, the thing is, you would not like to have your foliage wet at night. If you have wet foliage, uh, that's where fungal diseases of all sorts can get started. Um, it's, it's less of an issue with shrubs, uh, depending on the flowers, may or may not be an issue. Just any time you can, try to, uh, try to be sure that things dry off before nightfall because the number of, uh, fungal spores in the air grows up very significantly after dark. So, uh, just, just water as early as you can, but this kind of heat, you're not gonna have much foliage on the plants or not much water on the foliage for very long. So, I, if it's the only time you can water, go for it. And also, I've, I've also heard that if you put vinegar down your sink, that it cleans it, but I'm not for sure. Uh, what about orange oil and vinegar? Would that be better? Or? Uh, I would use them separately, and you might want to use some baking soda. If you want to hang on, we can talk a little bit more, but I've got to go to news. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. 
And I do have a couple of lines open there. We're going to talk uh, with Jeanette just a minute more, and then Alonso, and then you can be next. You just heard the number, 210-599-5555. But, uh, Jimmy, let's go back to Jeanette for just a moment. Thank you. uh, Thank you very much. Oh, you're certainly welcome. Uh, Cleaning, Uh, you know, cleaning your... your, Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say cleaning the lines, a combination of vinegar and baking soda, works extremely well i occasionally use orange oil because sometimes you can get the larvae of what they call sewer gnats the little uh, gnats that form and reproduce and breed in that uh, little u-shaped thing they call the p-trap underneath the sink you have to have that but it's supposed to you know hold water that's what keeps sewer gases from backing up into your home so it's just there's always water down there and occasionally you get an issue i guess you could even get mosquitoes there but uh that's what i use orange oil for or you know if anything seems a little stinky orange oil really takes care of it but as far as actually cleaning the lime probably uh uh vinegar and baking soda are going to be the best choice oh i love to smell orange oil it smells so nice but you know (laughs) Somebody even told me, oh, put coffee grounds down it. But I think, my goodness gracious. I've never heard that. I've never heard that one. (laughs) But anyway, when you apply the baking soda and the the vinegar, do you mix the, do you just sprinkle the, um, uh, what you call it, down there? Or or do you you mix it together? Or how do you you apply it in there? How do you, you know? Probably better talk to someone who knows more about cleaning than I do. I just pour the vinegar down there and then, uh, you know, let it stand for a bit. Uh, well, it, it will stay in the P-trap down there. And uh, then I followed up with baking soda and water afterwards. That may not be the best way to do it, but um, just the way the plumbing's done on my home, I rarely have a problem there, so I can't mix, claim a lot of experience. The soda, mix the baking soda with water and yeah. then... The follow up okay. with that. Yeah, do now, the vinegar do separately. It, do you rinse it really well after that, or do you let it just sit there and you know do its thing? I would I would give it a few minutes and then rinse it well. Don't don't waste water. We don't have a drop to spare in the current drought Not conditions. At all. Not at but, all. Um, I will. I'm sure somebody will correct me if I'm not telling you correctly, and uh, I'll, I'll have oh. I'll have people in here who are a little bit more conversant, as an old aunt of mine used to say about that. But uh, that's what I've done, and uh, it's I, I rarely ever have to do it. I do periodically, you know, have to deal with the with the um, sewer net issue though, and orange oil sure does a good job on that very quickly. Well, you know, when I'm outside and I use vinegar and uh, orange oil to kill plant uh, weeds, right. you know, somebody right. will be passing by and they say, oh, my gosh, what is that? It smells so nice. And I tell them and they say, <laughs> well, you know, I'm going to go home and try that. I say, well, Bob Webster told me to do it. <laughs> well, and you know, if you're having a party or something, it'll also work to help keep the mosquitoes away. Uh, spraying that around, uh, the mosquitoes don't like the smell. Not that we have a lot of mosquitoes because we don't have much standing water. I don't think it works quite as well as garlic, but I know people who have uh, said that it's totally kept their yards uh, mosquito-free for two or three hours, spraying that prior to having an outdoor event of some sort. So it's just good stuff. It's uh, There are many, many different, in fact, uh, you know, we actually have uh, a list made out if you ever buy the nursery and want a copy uh, we'll give you a list of all the different things you can use orange oil for it's much more than uh, than just a cleaner well you know yes 
yesterday I was outside and I got stung by a bee and I, it kept stinging and stinging and stinging. And so finally I came in and I, I looked and the stinger was still in there. So I took it out and they say, take out the stinger right away and you, it, it will quit stinging. Is that correct? Well, yes and no. Uh, that's an interesting thing you brought up because we had an employee stung recently. Don't, yes, you do need to take the stinger out, but don't grab it with your fingers and try to pull it out because many times there's what they call a poison sack that's the upper end of the stinger and if you just grab it you're going to you're going to squeeze a lot more of that venom into you and it's going to hurt a heck of a lot worse before it stops hurting you need to take a you know a pair of very fine tweezers or something like that and try to get the stinger right at the level of the skin without squeezing the top of it and pull it out and that way you will have you know, the the minimum of pain with it, rub a little bit of comfrey on it. Um, and if you start experiencing any difficulty breathing or anything like that, get help in a hurry because uh, uh, a few, not very many people, thank God I'm not one of them at this point in my life, but uh, some people have life-threatening reactions to bee stings, even with just one or two stings. So if you, other than hurting, if you start feeling like you are having respiratory issues, uh, that may be a 911 call. Um, if you get stung by a bee, but getting that stinger out, just do it properly. Try to get hold of it right at skin level. Don't squeeze the top as you pull it out. Well, I've heard if you put baking soda on it, too, does that help, or is that just an old wife's tale? That really helps with a wasp sting, but a wasp sting wow. and bee stings are two entirely different things. Uh, wasp stings tend to be very painful. Very few people have allergic reactions to wasp stings, but... Um, um, I have a very good friend and somebody you probably know well that I won't mention my name, but uh, uh, he was told by a doctor, you know, don't get stung again, it could kill you. This is why people carry the epinephrine, uh, you know, things around if they know they have a severe allergic reaction. Hopefully you don't, but just uh, uh, anybody listening out there, if you ever have a bee sting by a, by a honeybee, um, whether it's Africanized or just, you know, standard European honey, be if you have a reaction to it where you feel like you're having difficulty breathing, uh, you need to well, get emergency help. Yeah, because that's interesting, isn't it? So, anyway, but anyway, life is thank you for life your is interesting. <laughs> it's just uh, <laughs> you know. Ever. Oh my goodness. <laughs> And and but, as uh, I saw a wonderful quote the other day. It said, uh, "Nature never disappoints," and uh, that's just so true. I, it's just endlessly fascinating. But there are a few little things like wasps, bees, and scorpions that uh, can stay out of my path. Please. I know, and you know, my little puppies got got stung by a bee the other day too. So I have mm-hmm. a, I have a seven pounder and a twenty pounder, and they're laying here in bed with me right now, listening to. <laughs> 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 well, give them, give them a scratch behind the ears, and you get out and have a good yeah. Saturday. And if you got anything to do outside, get up and get with it, and uh, we'll talk oh, again, Jeanette. I know it. I know it. We we need some rain. My rain Amen. dance is not working, Bob. It's not working. Well, it will sooner or later, so just keep up the best That's you can. That's what I hear. That's what I hear. One of these days. Some, That's some it. people are getting burned to death, and some people are getting drowned. So we're... Neither one. <laughs> We're in the middle. We're in the middle. Yeah, yeah, we are. Well, you have a great Saturday. It's my pleasure. Right Thank now. you. All Goodbye. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, uh, next in line is Alonzo. Good morning, Alonzo. 
Oh, Alonzo had to go, apparently. Alonzo had to go. Okay, I'll tell you what. I'm just going to go ahead and uh, we'll get a little commercial break in here. And uh, everybody, you've got open lines now, so it should be much easier to get through. 210-599-5555. We'll be right back. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening, and uh, do still have some open lines, so grab one of them if you like, because they'll probably get jammed up again very shortly. You know the number, 210-599-5555. Ah, uh, we're going to talk first to Chris. Uh, good morning, Chris. Good morning, everybody. Get you off speakerphone. Anyway, quick question for all of us out there. Tomatoes planting in this weather now for fall. Basic guidelines. Well, it's, you know, it's certainly we've got to get, especially the big fruited tomatoes, need to go in the ground so that they will have time to mature, um, you know, when when the night temperatures are going to be appropriate. Um, it is, the sun is very, very intense. The winds are very, very drying. So uh, I would recommend giving them a little protection from the sun in whatever fashion you can. Some people put up like a little temporary shade structure. What I do is go ahead and set my tomato cages down over the plant. Even though the plant's only four inches tall, I'll go ahead and put the cage down because I know it's going to grow up. And then I will wrap a layer of insulate around the lower couple of feet of the cage. Uh, Insulate, of course, is we use it as a... uh, uh, something to give things a little protection from the cold, but it also works well to give a little bit of shade, and it also helps to keep those very drying winds off because dehydration can sometimes be as much problem, you know, as the heat. But uh, beyond that, you know, the procedure is still the same old procedure. We dig a deep hole, put a handful of rock phosphate in the bottom, plant your plant, but uh, uh, I... You know, any transplants you buy are almost certainly going to have come out of a greenhouse, and they're really not quite ready for the kind of intense sun that we've been having. So uh, give them some little shade protection, some wind protection. I'd like to say the way I do it is just by going ahead and putting the tomato cage over them and then just wrap a single layer of insulate around and put it on with a clothespin. takes uh, all of 30 seconds. Correct. Good. And then planning for whatever we want to plant now, since it's so hot, we could restart everything, right? You Beans can. Um, uh, you know, it's it's too late to plant the so-called winter squash because it takes them too long to mature. But uh, if you want to plant more bush beans, if you want to plant more summer squash, if you want to plant more cucumbers, um, yep, you can go ahead and plant that seed now. I usually plant my broccoli in August, but I tell you, with the kind of heat we're having right now, that's not going to happen. It's going to be September before I even think about putting broccoli or, and then a little bit later, cauliflower and cabbage and things Is like that, that from in. Seed but or from, uh, transplants? Those from, those are from transplants. Okay. Yeah. I got seed growing right now on broccoli and yeah. they're, they're suffering even though they're quote off out of the direct sun, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, plan on, you know, if they start getting a little large, go ahead and step them up to the next size pot. But uh, I, this is just the most intense 
Oh, period that I think I, I can remember. Everybody says, oh, you're just getting older. But, no, I've been through a lot of summers in Texas, and last summer was bad. This one's worse. And uh, what you're feeling is what they call radiant heat, uh, where you know the right. sun warms the surface it hits. And, uh, you know, your skin or the little plants can actually get much hotter than what the air temperature is just from the sunlight effect. So, yeah, things things need a little... A little help if you need to start them, which you do on your fall tomatoes. But a lot of other things, I'm just going to put off uh, planting those until uh, we get a little break from this. One thing, one thing from the scientific point of view or the science point of view, and you got to dig down to find the actual truth, as opposed to what the government says is the fact <laughs> that the sun is no, the sun is outputting. They've discovered the fact that over the last 50 years, the sun has been outputting about six to eight percent more than they expected. Isn't that a surprise? <laughs> yeah, well, it's it, NASA. NASA is down deep. You got even NASA says that. Yeah, the, the total thing is about six to eight percent higher amount of energy coming from the sun than they completely. You know, over the last 50 years, guess what? That corresponds to the 6 to 8% of extra heat we're generating on the Earth. Well, the, the one, the one thing... Politics, political thing. <laughs> yeah, the, the one thing about the sun, though, is that uh, it's never been uniform in its output. I mean, it's not True. just one... It fluctuates. It does fluctuate, so who knows... Who knows the if that's a year, net the effect? The 26-year sunspot cycle, and then there, people don't realize there's a 52-year sunspot <laughs> cycle. And if you get and you go back, because that's something I got trained in. <laughs> yep. Well, it's always and so we're, interesting. We're towards the peak of yep. one of those. Well, I'm I'm ready for it to pass and, and go I back. I'd like to, to see cooler weather, normal. No, well, no, 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 never use the term normal when you talk about That's weather. True. Talk about typical yes, weather. And, typical, uh, yes. I meant to say the word typical. <laughs> Chris, you get out and enjoy planting those tomato plants, and we will move along to Robert and then Angie. Good morning, Robert. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Um, I guess maybe it's all heat-related, but my different plants are really not blooming, like the, the shrimp plant even. Mm-hmm is not not really well no it hasn't had one bloom on it at at all <clears throat> and the uh anise shrubs uh usually those those have a yellow flower on them quite you know prolific but i have about eight plants and not one of them is flowering well the the thing about your and that's uh they call that mint marigold hatchetes uh lucinda i believe it is but uh, it responds to day length. It's too early for the anise to uh, really be flowering. The days need to get a little bit shorter. Probably, no matter what the temperature is, probably not going to see the flowers there until uh, early to mid-September. But other things, you're exactly right. Uh, things and, and things that are flowering, crepe myrtles and periwinkles and everything else, are not flowering as well as they typically would. But um, the reason is uh, there's something called the compensation point, and that's how much energy it takes a plant merely to stay alive, let alone try to grow and bloom. And the compensation point is so high right now that uh, the plant's just putting everything it can into staying alive, and there's not much left over for blooming. And that's that's why your your shrimp plant, that's why your, um, oh golly, many of the different salvias aren't blooming 
quite as well yeah. as they usually do and other things but uh don't don't that and that uh anise plant as you're calling it uh most people call it mexican mint marigold um it is one of them that really does droop from the heat, but it uh, always seems to perk back up the next day. So be sure you're watching that one with plenty of water. But uh, um, in this case, it's natural for it to be a little while before it really starts putting on those beautiful yellow flowers. Okay. Yeah, the, the plant themselves look healthy. Yeah. Um, just a, okay. How about the, even the plumeria? Um, my, I might get... A couple of flowers on them, but they're not mm-hmm. near as blooming as they used to. Right. We just need a little bit, uh, a little bit of a break. Like I say, the the compensation point is just so high right now that the plants have very little left over to put into blooming. You know, when we get a little bit of break from the heat, and we will sooner or later. <laughs> It's uh, where that old calendar is marching forward. Uh, your plumerias, hopefully, will still have enough time to go ahead and give us a little bit more of the warm weather bloom that we're used to. You know, when you go to Hawaii or go to some of the tropical areas where they're used as landscape plants, they practically bloom year-round. So if we get a little bit of break from the heat, I think you'll see a, a bit more blooms. But uh, it's just it's just all stress-related and just from that high compensation point. Okay, well, how about fertilizing with the organic granular fertilizer? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. A good plan, and uh, it's nice that it doesn't have to be watered in, so you're not worried about the saws water police coming around telling you're watering at the wrong time. Uh, it doesn't really go to work until it gets watered, so you need to water on your regular cycle. But um, the plants will certainly benefit from a good supply of nutrients and uh, good organic granular fertilizer. Yeah, it's, it's just fine to be doing that. Okay. Well, very good, then. I'll talk to you another time. Well, I will look forward to it, and I really do appreciate the call, Robert. Thank you so much. All right, uh, we're going to get a quick break in here. It uh, looks like Angie will be up next, but I get to take a moment and talk to you about Fanix Nursery and Garden Center. And, uh, you know, talking about plumerias uh, kind of jogged my memory here. And that this weekend only, um, the uh, Fanix is giving you 20% off on all of their plumerias. And they've got a pretty good, uh, pretty good supply from Captain Jack's, I believe it is. Um, they're also giving you 30% off on all bananas and figs. They'd rather not have to water quite as much material. So this weekend, today and tomorrow only, 30% off bananas and figs, 20% off of uh, their many beautiful plumerias. They're also well-stocked on fall vegetable plants. They are also well-stocked on perennials and things that qualify for the Saw's Water Saver Rebate Plan. And as long as you water, there's nothing wrong with planting this time of the year. Still lots of crepe myrtles in stock, too. They also have all the organic gardening supplies you're looking for as far as fertilizers and other products. Don't forget about that Eagle lithium-ion battery-powered outdoor equipment. You see, you really want to get that outdoor work done early in the day. And you don't want to be making a lot of noise waking the neighbors up. And that's the nice thing about uh, lithium-ion battery-powered equipment. It is much, much quieter. So many reasons to go see Fanix. Right where they've been for about 90 years now over on Home Green Road, just off just uh, off of W.W. White. Open seven days a week to serve you at Fanix Nursery and Garden Center. Check their website, FanicNursery.com, for complete information. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. 
All right, back to the gardening. On uh, it's a nice morning out there. The guy's just unloaded a semi of tropical plants over here, <laughs> and said, "They're not really sweating too bad yet." So, if you got things to do outside, boy, this is sure the time of day to do it. Most important thing you do though is give me a call, and we do surprisingly have a few open phone lines. So, uh, been trying to get through and getting a busy signal. You know the number: two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Angie is up next. Good morning, Angie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, my husband's going to um, sift out my, I have a three compost piles going and we kind of, one's ready to be used. And I wanted to ask you if we could add some lava sand to it for more water retention or is that Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. That's a very, very good idea. Um, okay. You know, I, I think you're fine. Lava is what they call hygroscopic. It actually attracts water and holds on to it. It's, uh, yeah. I think, about the best thing you can do to help retain moisture in your soil. Naturally, the more organic material you have in the soil, the better it is long term, and, and that also helps a great deal. But uh, uh, lava sand for something you can add is an outstanding right. material to use. Certainly okay, is. good. And then my other question is, with the fall garden, I want to have your advice for the adjustment with the heat. What I was gonna—I usually try a corn crop in the fall, but I heard that's a no—that's not really a good idea. But I, I've had success in the past. That's why. Well, the the problem with fall corn is it's uh, more susceptible to some different insect issues, uh, specifically uh-huh. something called a midge that um, can create a problem. But I, I guess if there's any good thing we're not seeing a lot of insect problems now mite problems like red spider mites yeah we're seeing lots of those but i think this hot weather has been you know hard on the bugs too because we're not seeing nearly the usual aphids and scale and things like that so uh i don't think i plant 10 acres of corn but (laughs) (laughs) no you know there there are a few things in life that i enjoy more than good corn on the cob especially done on the grill so uh if you've had success with uh, with fall corn, I'd at least get some planted. Okay, great. And like, should I hold off till it's under a hundred, or should I? I do it now. Uh, I would do it now. You know, okay. it's uh, uh, corn. Corn will tolerate heat pretty well. Corn's been with grown for hundreds of years in the desert southwest. Uh, the early okay. forms of it and. Uh, as long as you're able to uh, give it the moisture it needs, uh, nothing at all wrong with planting it. And I'm sure you already know this, but anybody that's planting corn, you never plant a just one long row of corn. You always plant several shorter rows side by side because corn is wind pollinated and uh, the pollen is produced on the, the uh, you know tassels at the top of the plant. And uh, right. it has to fall down and, uh, and in effect, fertilize. You have to have a grain of pollen for every single kernel in that ear of corn. So um, you, you want lots of pollen showering down on it. So it's, uh, you don't plant what one do long think, row. Yeah, what do you think the optimum amount of rows is? The, I guess the minimum amount, amount to get a good crop. If you can do four rows, you'll do a lot better. I mean, two okay, is a good yeah, starting point. but. 10. Okay. Yeah, if, yeah, you you're gonna have you're gonna have plenty of good corn that way, and I'd space your rows no more than uh, fourteen, sixteen inches apart, just enough room okay. for you to get to be able to get it dead, down between plants. 
great. I'll do that today. And then you said, my, I have some good broccoli seedlings about four inches tall. Just put them in a bigger pot, you said? I would. Um, again, I got if them under you... cloth. I've got them, you know, really shaded, and I keep them pretty nicely watered, but I've been waiting to put them in the ground. Well, if you can create the same thing that you're doing, if you can create some shade for them, if you can keep the hot, dry wind off of them, then you can then you can go ahead and put them in the ground because that's not really a whole lot different than what they're doing on your propagating bench. But uh, right. I would very definitely be sure that I could give them, you know, maybe 40% shade and make sure you don't miss a day of watering. And, and do keep the water off the foliage where you can because, okay. you know, you know how water just beads up on not just uh, right. broccoli but cauliflower, cabbage, and other things. That big old droplet of water acts like a magnifying glass, and it can burn whatever's underneath it. So uh, in this case, I'd try to water the soil only. If that's not an option, then wait until late afternoon when the sun's not so intense before you water. Yeah, I've got them like in the under in a team, like one of the big Texas tomato cages with insulate mm-hmm. over it, and I've got the yeah. plants where i want to put them and Uh and that's where i've got them and they seem to be really happy so i think i might put them in and and yeah and and if you know putting them in the soil the roots are going to be cooler than they are up exposed to the hot air so long as you have that shade over them you're probably just fine to go ahead and plant if you like okay and then real quick fall cucumbers in a couple weeks or now oh boy um Again, I've same sort of thing. If okay. if you can if you can give them a little shade, it takes them you know forty most varieties mm-hmm. somewhere around forty days to really mature, and so it would be nice to be able to go ahead and get them started, but only if you can give them a little bit of shade to keep away that radiant uh, heating effect. Yeah, I've got I've got so much shade cloth in my garden. It looks like a like, you know, <laughs> camping ground out there. I don't know. <laughs> Well, you no, obviously know what you're doing. You're obviously <laughs> successful at what you're doing. So uh, trying, I'm trying to keep things alive. It's a goal. It's well, a challenge. You just one more up. week. I think one more week. It's going to come down. One more week. I will make note of that, and I certainly, certainly <laughs> hope you're right. You know, it it's it always eventually as the days get shorter, and you know, we pass right. the. Uh, uh the you know the longest day of the year back in june so we're we're well on our way to shorter days which is going to mean less heat which is going to mean a gradual cooling but uh um again this idea of radiant heat is just the the way the sun feels when it hits you know exposed skin i just don't ever remember it being quite this uh you know this intense now and oh yeah, I, you know, working and I've worked outside several mornings recently, fairly well in the morning. And if we've got a little cloud cover, the heat's not all that bad. But man, the minute the sun comes out from behind that cloud, uh, you're wanting to run for run for cover, literally. So uh, yeah, I wear um, all the UV protection clothing, the hat. I got a scarf around my neck, sunscreen. I'm just cut. I don't have any skin exposed because, like you said, it's just too much. Your dermatologist would be very, very proud of you. <laughs> I, I love there used to be a billboard along one of my routes that always had something related to uh, skin damage uh, from the sun. And uh, and uh, it, the, this particular one has a big question up there. It says, when I have skin like leather, and then underneath <laughs> it says, just keep tanning it. 
<laughs> so, yeah, and, you know, I got vanity too. I don't want all my the H spots. You know, it's just things yeah. that I yeah. plus don't want skin. My dad had skin cancer, so just don't want to go there. No. No, it's, uh, you know, I think uh, all of us gardeners get the occasional little basal cell skin cancer now and then, but the, yeah. some of the deadly forms out there, which may or may not be related to some, but uh, I enjoy, as I tell my dermatologist, I much more enjoy you know, our visits on a social basis than I do on a professional basis. Definitely, just the spot checks. There all you right. go. All right, well, sounds good. I'll go enjoy this morning, and I thank you for all your advice. It's always a pleasure, Angie. Good luck with your gardening. I appreciate the call. Thank you. Goodbye. All right. Well, you know, we uh, do our visit with uh, uh, Howard Garrett, the dirt doctor, uh, at 8 o'clock. So uh, if you want to get a call in before uh, that time shows up, uh, it would be a good time to dial because we do have some open lines. 210-599-5555. Jimmy, let's go ahead and get our last commercial break done. And... uh, Then we'll be right back, either with some monologue for me or with some more callers. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. On a, that's, that's overcast. It's just really nice this morning. Wouldn't hurt my feelings if it sticks around. Still have some open lines, but we are do have Robin and JT waiting to talk. Robin is up first. Good morning, Robin. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I have two questions. Last summer, I grew sweet potatoes. Uh-huh. But they were kind of a failure because they had, I guess, wireworms in them. Uh-huh. And they were, they were small. But anyway, so I didn't plant them this spring, but they came up anyway. <laughs> and so, yeah, beautiful vines. And yeah. so I watered, watered them. And then I went to dig them the other day. I thought, okay, must be time for a sweet potato. Could not find one sweet potato anywhere. <laughs> yep, right. It's um, don't be in a rush. Two or three things. Um, they uh, you can take care of the wireworms very effectively with beneficial nematodes. So anytime you're going to plant sweet potatoes, I would certainly give the soil a good beneficial nematode treatment. Uh, the sweet potato, the yam, the what we eat of a sweet potato is basically a starch storage organ for the plant. And, you know, uh, once again, whatever energy the plant has left over from growing in the heat is what it's going to use to, you know, make the, the tubers that we like to eat. Uh, it, and again, the, the compensation point's just been so hot, so high that uh, there's just very little energy left over to have much uh, much tuber production at this point. Now, sweet potatoes do not ever ripen per se. Sweet potatoes just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, the biggest one I think I've ever seen weighed, I think it was 45 pounds. I mean, you'd have to have a commercial oven to cook something like that. And uh, But um, just be patient. Uh, there's... And... and you know, the thing to do is just, as you're doing, just kind of probe around in the soil periodically and see what you find. Uh, unlike the white potatoes or yellow or purple or whatever color you're growing these days, uh, the potatoes don't form right underneath the vine. The tubers can form, you know, several feet away. So that's what makes it sometimes challenging. That's why I grow them in one of those fabric pots. But, uh, 
Uh, even if it's, I mean, you could harvest a uh, harvest one on Thanksgiving and have it for your Thanksgiving dinner the same day. So there's no rush, and as long as the vines stay healthy, uh, the tubers will form and will continue to grow larger and larger. But nothing's going to grow, you know, very efficiently until this intense heat breaks and we get back to a little bit more typical weather and typically as we move into august we start getting a few cooler nights and the days gradually cool off so don't give up on on sweet potatoes this fall and don't feel like it's anything you're failing to do okay thank you i and i did uh, forget to mention i did treat for nematodes uh before i planted the the garden uh this this year so that's good yeah. that's good so you shouldn't have wireworm problems this year but right. um crazy weather that we've had it's in this case um the uh, uh the wireworm adult is actually what's called a click beetle it's not a moth or something like that it's like like uh most of your of your caterpillar type things and i call a wireworm a segmented worm but uh they the beetles can be around Later and in this kind of heat, the beneficial nematodes may not last quite as long in the soil. So uh, you might want to think about, uh, you know, sometime in a couple of weeks, go ahead and give one more beneficial nematode treatment. Ah, oh, so you can put them on any time. Any time of the year, as as long as there's moisture in the soil. That's uh, as somebody pointed out to me one time said uh, nematodes don't walk; they swim. And so you've got to have some moisture in the soil for them to move. But uh, any time you have any moisture in the soil, nothing at all wrong without, with putting out beneficial nematodes. Small area, like where you're growing your sweet potatoes, that's not going to be an issue. Uh, people are having flea problems this summer, and it, it's hard to do because it's hard to get the whole yard adequately moist. But, uh, no, any time you, adequ- you have enough moisture in the soil to keep your plants alive, you have enough moisture in the soil for the nematodes to survive. But getting them in, getting them spread through, you want to have that soil pretty moist when you first put them out. Okay, thank you. Okay, second question. Uh, I have some cannas in pots mm-hmm. and they the ones in the ground are fine are fine they're beautiful mm-hmm. the ones some of the ones in the pots have this rust-like um formation on the leaves uh-huh and what what is going on there if you had a soil thermometer you could go stick it down in that pot and you're going to find old Malcolm Beck did this one time and he compared the soil raised up in a pot in the sun to soil in the ground especially soil with mulch over it and he found that there was I think a 60 degree temperature difference uh his his soil in the pot in the sun was like 145 degrees and uh his soil under the mulch was like 85 degrees so uh, those pots, especially if they're growing in black nursery containers, they absorb that heat. And uh, the if you're not ready to put them in the ground, at least wrap the pots up. I mean, you could use old burlap bags. You could use anything. But try to get those uh, roots in a shadier spot. Try to get those pots in a shadier spot. You're just looking at soil that is super, super heated. Oh, interesting. Okay, now, should I cut off those leaves that, that don't look nice? They should, should cut them all off? Um, anytime any green 
tissue that you have in the leaves is able to continue to photosynthesize. So uh, any green you have is helping the plant. Anything that's super unattractive, yeah, I'd probably just trim it off. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you very much. That's so helpful. So I hope I can remedy these situations. And I've I think... Sweet potatoes. I love them. <laughs> <laughs> they are certainly good. And um, uh, again... You know, a little mulch on the surface of the soil will help keep the soil a little cooler, but uh, it's just this it's just been an intense summer, and the plants are are not performing like they usually do. But sooner or later, it will get better. So you just hang in there, and I uh, do appreciate the call this morning, Robin. Thank you so much. Thank you. Love you, you're, too. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. All right, uh, next in line is JT. Good morning, JT. Hey, good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Tell us about planting onion seeds. Um, it's a very simple process. Uh, you you want to cover the seeds just lightly. Uh, what most people do is that they will start with, uh, and and most people are going to grow them in a tray rather than in a pot. But you can grow them wherever you like. But just uh, have at least three or four inches of good soil. Sprinkle your seed over the surface and cover it with maybe a quarter of an inch of soil and, uh, you know, water and wait. And when we do it, fall into our spring. You want to do it probably about 60 days before you anticipate putting the little plants into the ground. Um, again, you're, it's just not... It just doesn't work well to direct seed into the garden. You're far better to, you know, start the little plants in containers, and um, and it takes about 60 days actually for them to really get up to a good transplantable size. Uh, you know, typically we start planting onions uh, can be December or January if we don't have a really cold winter, and the uh, the way that the so-called Texas Super Sweet came to be called the 1015 onion. Uh, I think was just to remind the Aggies that it's the 15th of October, 10:15 is when they ought to be planting the seed. I said that jokingly. I have many, many friends that went to Texas A&M, and many of them are very good gardeners. But uh, uh, so typically, yeah, yeah, typically about 60 days before you're ready to plant them. And there's no reason you can't plant them a little earlier. There's no reason you can't plant a crop, uh, um, you know, say in January or something like that. But figure. Figure on 45 to 60 days to make a nice transplant. Well, I've only done it one time to raise onions. Did it planted them last spring, and they did well even through the hot part of the early summer. But uh, uh-huh. so now, now I'm hooked. I want to learn the, the right way to do it next time. They did <laughs> great, but uh, there's probably well, a better time to do it than when I did it. Well, and just remember, onions uh, need lots and lots of moisture. Most of that whole family Lots, lots of lots of moisture. The the thrips insect gets to be such a problem uh, when we get really dry weather and really dry soil. So um, just be sure, you know, like I say, be sure you maintain the moisture, but um, and be sure you're choosing the right varieties. But uh, no reason you can't no reason you can't get ready and get a fall crop in. So called short day then, right for for us? Absolutely, absolutely. Now, when when will you guys get the plants? Most all the nurseries in Texas get them from one source, and um, typically, 
We start seeing them in the fall, sometimes around October or November. But uh, I, I really, I haven't talked to Dixondale, is the name of the company, but uh, I, I haven't heard when they anticipate having the first ones ready. But typically, it's sometime uh, early to mid-October. I rescued a couple of your last batches last spring, I guess. Looked like they were about dead, but you know, 90% of them survived, and they, they really looked bad when I bought them. I went ahead and got them. And those <laughs> in the leaks, too, did really well. And, uh, yeah. So... Yeah, right, they just, well, they're just they're tough to maintain, you know, when they've been pulled out of uh, their germinating areas that they grow them. But uh, it's if you if if they're not don't have any actual rot in them, uh, you can. I planted some pretty bad looking transplants and gotten some very delicious onions out of the deal. So and and that's the other mistake that a lot of people make when they go to buy onions is they want to get those bundles that have the little onion plants that are already pretty big. And that's a big mistake because those are the ones that are likely to bolt. Those little, little bit wimpier, skinnier ones, uh, long term, are typically going to make the best onions for you. So, uh, either intentionally or accidentally, you did exactly the right thing. Yeah, none of them bolted and didn't have a single bug that I saw on them. It was beginner's luck, I guess. Uh, you get a blue ribbon for onion culture. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, when. They can grow through the winter then if you get them planted in time before frost. I don't understand that part. Again, a typical winter is not a problem. Onions, I've had them, oh, you know, had 20-degree winters when the onions kept growing beautifully all winter. When we had the 10-degree winters, uh, they froze. But uh, typically, upper teens, lower 20s, that is usually our typical minimum temperature, and that doesn't seem to bother the onions at all. But, you know, all bets are off. We've had, we've had in the past two out of the last three years, we've had one of those once-in-30-year winters. So hopefully we'll put that behind us. But uh, only, as my grandfather said, only fools and foreigners try to predict the weather in Texas. Well, yeah. Shallots the same way? Uh, yes. Uh, shallots are... Oh, there, there are many different uh, shallots or many different multiplying onions. They like cooler soil. Uh, I, I, just because of availability, it seems like I've always ended up planting shallots in early February. But if you can find them in the fall, I see no reason you couldn't plant them at the same time you did your fall onions. All righty, Bob. Thank you very much. Have a good weekend. Thanks. You do the same, sir. I really appreciate the call, JT. Thank you. And let me look at my clock here. Really don't have time to uh, take any more calls before, but uh, we'll do our, our visit with Howard Garrett uh, right after the news here, and then we'll have usually some time at the end of the show. So if you if you think of additional questions, you know the number to call, but just uh, don't don't call until about 8.30 or so. Uh, a couple of minutes here before news time. Uh, it is a good idea to fertilize, uh, but be sure you're using organic uh, and do know that uh, fertilizer doesn't really go to work until it gets watered in. So uh, you'll need to water at some point, but your dry granular organic fertilizers can be put out even in the heat and do not have to be watered. Uh, with liquid fertilizer, the great fertilizers, the liquid fish, the uh, has to grow plant, all of those things. We find it's best if you water the pots before you apply the fertilizer. 
Uh, we have had a little bit of burn if you put the fertilizer directly on plants who are really dry as far as liquid fertilizer. So always be sure those guys get watered first and then follow up with your liquid fertilizer. But on your beds, uh, you know, on your grass, things like that, just get the fertilizer applied uh, when it's convenient for you. Water on your regular schedule and your plants will very definitely appreciate it and will, uh, you know, will certainly get through the summer better. Other things to put on the calendar, we're not that far away from the 1st of September, not that far away from Labor Day. Remember, that's the time that bush roses, we tend to do our fall pruning if we want to get the best flowers uh, on the roses. Roses are growing. They're just struggling through the heat, and they will certainly appreciate some fertilizer. But if you're looking forward to a really good crop of blooms this fall, do your fertilizing now. Keep getting good moisture on them. Keep the soil mulched. And uh, plan on right around uh, Labor Day for most bush roses, prune them back by about a third. Mulching is very, very important. Yes, you will find that a good mulch can knock the soil temperature down by 30 to 40 degrees. And so things that you're looking at that look like they're really suffering from the heat, chances are they'd be doing much better if you had a layer of good mulch. doesn't really matter if you want a good living mulch. You'll get some with some compost mixed in, but just any kind of just ground-up trees, brush, whatever, would be a good idea. You're listening to Gardening on KTSA Radio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening, and uh, don't dial right this minute, of course. Uh, if you've been listening long, you know that this is the time of the show that we take a few minutes to visit with one of the greatest gardeners I know, and uh, good morning, Howard Garrett. Good morning. How's everybody? Well, I'm probably better off than most people because I got a few days out of the heat, but uh, I think most of us are doing pretty well. Well, yeah, you keep taking advantage of us, leaving us all here far enough north of the garden. You go on nice trip. That's okay. Well, well, I, and I will admit this was strictly for pleasure. We did some uh, past couple of trips have been work-related gift markets, things like that. But we just never been to Wisconsin and said, you know, it'd be nice to just take a week and go somewhere out of the heat. And it was it was very interesting. Have you ever been up in that area? Oh yeah, but it's been a while. I need to go back it was uh a, a number of interesting things you know i just remember in my studies biology whatever uh all the years talking about plant succession and that the fact that the ultimate in the areas where weather allowed it was the so-called beach maple climax where those are the two trees that uh sort of the final dominators of the canopy but i never actually seen that seen that but we uh we hiked in some beach maple forest up there and uh it was just interesting um went to a went to a lavender farm up there and uh unfortunately those people haven't seemed to learn a whole lot about organics but that uh I, you know I, maybe someday we'll we'll have a little bit more nationwide influence but uh sure makes me appreciate what we're able to do here at home but anyway it was a good trip and saw some pretty country up there and uh, it was just real interesting and it was it was nice to get uh four days out of the heat well that's good but good to have you back and uh working on trying to convert the world here <laughs> it's uh i've been doing a little research i heard one of your listeners bring up this 
spraying of uh, trees. Right. And it, it's kind of interesting what's going on. The uh, drone technology is really, as everybody knows, really developing. And there's a couple of different things happening. One of them is that there's uh, AI uh, technology. There's a company called Precision AI, in mm-hmm. fact, that is working on spraying herbicides on large farms and it's pretty cool what the drones can do they they can they can carry uh, herbicides and carry about eight gallons 65 pounds and you know spraying herbicide part of it we don't like but the part that's pretty cool is that these drones are being used to identify the plants the weeds from the good crops and do real surgical type spraying and they're huh. you know, they're trying to promote the idea that they're because of the way this works they're spraying a whole lot less herbicide like 90 percent reduction wow and uh it, that's getting going on the one hand and that's you know they're gonna people are gonna keep spraying herbicide so if we can figure out how to spray less if that's something that's working that might be something really good the only thing i could find that related to spraying trees on the uh, utility lines comes from a story from austin there's nothing uh, else really on the internet about it and what is being promoted there is uh, to spray not a herbicide but a growth regulator a tree growth mm-hmm. regulator and the chemicals real long name pack or something like that. I've heard about it here in Dallas from some of the arborists that are actually using it around mm-hmm. here. And the theory there is that it slows down the cell development and the growth of the plant functions like a growth regulator you'd use on turf, which I don't approve uh-huh. of at all, and cuts down on how much pruning needs to be done. And, and so they're looking at it to use it instead of some of the other techniques on keeping the trees, you know, back under power line. That's well, that yeah, that'd make a lot more sense in herbicides. And uh, you know, I'm I'm like you. I'm not big on growth regulators, and uh, I don't think they're totally safe for people and pets. I look at some of the old bonsai and some of the original ones, and uh, they came with some pretty strict warnings. So. Uh, uh, it's certainly a, nothing that I would really condone, but it, that would certainly make more sense than than actually using an herbicide. I just that that's the craziest thing I ever heard. But uh, this idea of using drones for pinpoint application, when you think about it, that could have some real good benefits as well. We could be using that to put out some beneficial microbes. We could be using it to put out some very good products as well as some uh, is. You know, as they're doing with some of the less desirable things now, but uh, I can see where that could be a a very valuable tool for even even organic gardeners. Yeah, the other positive thing that they're using for already is uh, identification of problems and, and diagnosis. In other words, inspection mm-hmm. of power lines, mm-hmm. and they're using equipment uh, like uh, lidar to not only uh, inspect the areas about 
you know, the height of the growth and what needs to be worked on and all that. But this LIDAR and infrared mm -hmm. uh, technology and lasers can tell the health of the trees, the uh -huh. trees that need water, the trees that have insect or disease problems and that sort of thing. And obviously those trees would be more susceptible to catching on fire and being being the big fire hazard. So exactly. Exactly. That's, that's pretty cool use of uh, drones too. Spray and because that, <laughs> yeah. And and with the lidar and the other things you're talking about, there's not a lot of weight involved. So uh, uh, they can use a smaller drone and it can stay aloft for a much longer time if that weight is put into batteries instead of carrying liquids. So yeah, that's one of the. And, and thank you to our military for so much of the technology that made that possible. But uh, that's an extremely good use of the drones at this point. Yeah. And I think that'll just increase. Yeah, so there's good and bad going on there. If they uh, come up, you know, I'm sure it's going to happen, come up with spraying Roundup and 2,4-D and other things like that from uh, drones. That's as bad or worse yeah. of an idea than the we're currently using. I understand it's a problem. I mean, we're, uh, we couldn't be more sensitive and, and aware of the problems of you know, forest fires and things like that with this horrible right. mess that's gone on in Maui just recently, but we don't want to open up the gates to uh, spraying even more toxic stuff. Maybe the growth regulators are a good way to go. I've talked to some of the arborists around here about it and there's more negative conversation about it than positive at this point about it hurting other plants and being a you know a toxic chemical but it it sounds to me like it would still be better than spraying uh, the herbicides themselves oh absolutely I, one of the things that they that some of the arborists are promoting is they're telling people your plants will use less water I don't know how much documentation there is. I guess with less leaf surface, and probably they would use somewhat less. But that's uh, uh, that says one of the lines that a couple of the big big companies, arboriculture companies, are using to tell people, "Oh, you'll conserve water if you let us spray your trees with this growth regulator." But uh, again, I not something I would choose for my yard. I'll just put it that way. Yeah, there, there's a. Uh Chicago-based company, ComEd, they're working with Davy Tree, so they're doing that kind of thing. And I think they're using a herbicide, actually using a herbicide in some cases. They're calling it a herbicide mixture that's mm -hmm. been approved, you know, by the EPA and all that. But, of course, that doesn't mean much because all this, <laughs> whole lot of stuff you and I try to get people to stop using has been approved by the EPA. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, well, the it's, I really appreciate your checking into that and giving us the the most up to date. And it's, it's something we need to follow. Uh, something we need to follow. But a couple of things I wanted to uh, tell you this morning. I actually broke down, and somebody else was footing the bill. So uh, I, I'm still just not a fan of TNLA, the Nursery Association. They're so anti organic and all but actually went down to their show downtown in san antonio yesterday and a couple of things that i you may know but uh i found very interesting is uh we now there's a company out there now that is doing a micronized uh biochar 
something that's fine enough that it, of course, doesn't doesn't dissolve, but can goes into go into suspension. And um, they were telling me that as long as people keep agitating, uh, you can even use a hose-in sprayer. And when I think about the good uses that you've kind of pioneered with charcoal um, as a uh, mitigating, you know, herbicide contamination and things like that, to have a charcoal product that we could actually spray rather than spread dry um, is something that I think has some potential. And uh, they're doing a micronized, uh, um, in fact, we talked about this just a couple of weeks ago, azomite that they now have uh, powdered to the point that, again, with proper agitation, my mouth's not working quite as well as my brain this morning, but with uh, proper agitation, uh, there is an azomite product out there that now uh, can be sprayed uh, for application. And... Related to that, are you familiar with this uh, uh, brand of sprayer called Quasar, K-W-A-Z-A-R? No. Uh, it's, uh, they're out of Poland, and um, it, they are very much like some sprayers that we got years ago from Germany and then couldn't get. And uh, they don't have a hose-in sprayer, but they've got everything from a little bit, you know, just a squeeze-trigger sprayer to some really neat handhold, handheld uh, sprayers that you can pressurize, that you can pump up. But this is just for a uh, for a pump up sprayer or for you know just a trigger sprayer. They're truly the best quality sprayers that I've seen in 20 years. So um, hopefully they will be a little bit more widely available. You might take a look at it. K W A Z A R. And uh, I'm sure we'll get some, and I'll, you know, forward a couple of them to you to try out for yourself. But uh, um, one of the one of the things I was impressed with one one of three things that I thought were really good uh, products after having looked at probably a thousand booths of different things and did see some interesting plants out there. But uh, um, th- those were two things that kind of caught my eye that I think uh, will be good things for the industry. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. But. Um, and and talk to some people like I know you talked uh, with Stuart recently, but uh, maybe getting some people interested in getting us uh, liquid BTI in uh, in an affordable homeowner size. And um, uh, anyway, we just keep talking, and uh, not going to happen overnight. But I think there's some potential for uh, getting a couple of new garlic sprays out there. Uh, talk to a couple of people who may be interested in producing a garlic pepper tea kind of like Gary DeMasters did years ago but uh, it was interesting I um, can't say like I'm not impressed at all with the organization but uh, it was a better put on show and there were more exhibitors than the last time I went which was three or four years ago but uh, kind of glad I went down and, uh, met some nice people and like I say found a couple of uh, what I think will be good things that's oh, good good well what else is going on in the heat? Uh, what kind of questions are you getting? I know other parts of the country are getting a little bit of a break from the heat, but uh, there's a lot of people suffering the you know severe drought that we're in, and um, it's it's getting. I hate to use the word dire, but uh, those of us speaking community-wise, it didn't have the foresight that we're talking about people before your and my time but uh, didn't develop the surface water that the metroplex has uh, the people relying on aquifer water it's it's getting pretty scary what's happening down here right now 
Even in, uh, you know, even some pretty big trees, uh, pretty big and pretty well-established trees, uh, starting to see a lot of uh, scalding on leaves. And and plants in the garden, both the flower garden and the vegetable garden, we're actually seeing some sunburn on the leaves of things that don't normally have that. And, of course, um, I think it's been established that sunburn really is a function of leaf temperature more than anything else. And I think you and I, again, were talking a couple of weeks ago about how that sun just seems more intense and that, that radiant heat effect where um, the sun can heat a surface, you know, much higher than the air temperature is. It just, I, I can't believe that we're not at least uh, a little bit above what is typical and I know working outside or just doing other things outside, you know, the temperature isn't that bad if you've got just a little bit of cloud cover, but, man, the minute that sun comes out, it gets uh, very uncomfortable. And um, Dr. Kirby says that he's sending a lot of a lot of dogs, especially especially older dogs, with uh, problems from the heat. And uh, I, it, we may not be setting records, but I, it's just the most uncomfortable summer that I think I've ever remembered. Yeah, people need to be really careful. I'm sure he's talking about it on walking their dogs. We try to get our dogs out early in the morning to walk, and we, we're lucky enough to have a, a lot of trees in the neighborhood so it can walk yeah. in uh, in shady spots. But the temperature of the pavement just gets roaring hot, you know, by the middle of the day and really can be dangerous to the dog's little paws. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they, <laughs> I've actually seen a few dogs wearing shoes lately. I can't imagine any dog I've ever had that would put up with having. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Logan told me that they tried that with their dog, and uh, the dog acted like it had broken their, its legs and couldn't walk at all. It wouldn't take to them a bit. So. That creates a very, very funny mental picture, and uh, but I, you know, and and again, but when I see people dressing up dogs, uh, there's a place that uh, unfortunately went out of business. It was one of our favorite breakfast places, and there was a couple that came in. We of course always sit outside, uh, you know, even even in the heat. I'd rather be outside than inside but uh <laughs> people would be sitting with these dogs dressed up and very happy the dog's not apparently who knows at what age they started but uh I, i'm just really surprised at what some people do and i'm also surprised at what some dogs put up with but it uh it does bring a smile to your face just to think about it but uh, what are you telling people about planting fall gardens? I'm emphasizing to people that maybe a little bit of shade and trying to keep the hot, dry wind off of things. But uh, we're getting to the time we need to get our fall tomatoes and things in. So you offering people any special advice on uh, uh, gardening in this heat? 
No, just a little little bit of shade. I think using the floating row cover as, as the shade material, like you talk about, or some similar way, at least on the uh, south and west sides, is really important. But I think most people are reluctant to get anything going in this heat, but you, you've got to do it. Got to get the seed planted and underway, or you're not going to have uh, enough time to have any production. So it's uh, it's it's time to do it. Yeah, and mulching, of course, uh, not up against the against the trunks, but boy, and again, I think it was Malcolm years ago that actually took his soil probe out and looked at the difference in soil temperature underneath an inch of mulch versus soil temperature in the sun, and uh, it was really dramatic. And uh, that's what I tell people, you know, telling them about the benefits of mulching that you know, you stop and think about how much better the roots are going to do if you can decrease your soil temperature that much and uh, um, so that's that's the other thing we're promoting and if people are gardening in containers um, I still think that you know the old-fashioned clay pots that actually where you can get some uh, evaporation off the surface are sure better than old black plastic pots that they come in because man they heat up in a hurry yeah one of the most common questions I get is, is should I go ahead and plant the plants I have in containers or should I wait until fall and you know by far the best thing to do is get the plants in the ground there's going to be a lot uh, in, a lot less stress in the ground even if it's 100 degrees than if they're in a pot in the same kind of weather it's funny that, that that's a fairly common question that we get I've got a ginkgo right now that I'm moving around because I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to plant it it grew from a seed from my big tree uh-huh. And it's in a big old square plastic pot, and I know from my own experience with with that, it's just tough to keep it watered enough. We're watering the potted uh, stuff around the house here at least twice a day and three times a day in some cases. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, I know that... Uh, just for stability, the people that make the pots, the, the black pots hold up. They don't depolarize and get brittle nearly as badly as the light-colored pots. But uh, uh, standard nursery container, I tell people, if you're going to have to keep plants in those things, try to get something around the pots, uh, even if you had to you know, paint them with a lighter color or something like that. That black plastic just really really absorbs the heat and uh one other thing i wanted to ask you about that i've heard about but i hadn't uh really looked at real carefully but uh these so-called are you familiar with what they call the root maker pots uh as and uh interesting i yeah yeah i i haven't tried them Uh, i've got one particular caller who has uh, like a roadside vegetable operation that uh he he really likes them, but uh, I'd, I'd never actually held one and picked one up and looked at it, and uh, I I haven't tried them enough to feel to know whether it really makes a big difference or not. But I wonder what your experience was. Oh, I think they do. They they're designed inside, so it avoids the circling and girdling uh, situation, getting that uh, pot bound uh, development that you have with round pots. So I think. Mm-hmm. That standpoint, it's worth it. They obviously cost quite a bit more. Right. But I've got some here, and I've used them. I think they, I think they're great. Uh huh. Designed for you know what they're working for, what they're designed for. 
Very good. Well, I just I'd, I'd heard about them, but I just never really, like I say, gotten a chance to pick them up. And they do everything from relatively, you know, small trays for growing bedding plants, of course, all the way up to pretty large containers for trees and shrubs. But uh, I don't know. It's just it's always fun to learn. So I had a had a good morning yesterday. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, anything else? Uh, one other thing that I wanted to ask you, and Roberta's the one that discovered this a while back. We, uh, we've talked about the different apps for plant identification, and I have to say we've had very mixed results with those, but I know you're something of a birder. But have you, uh, have you found the app that's called Merlin, M-E-R-L-I-N? No, I haven't tried that. That's a bird identification one? It's And it's amazing how accurate it is and um, how even with some background noise, it's uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. And, and we have spent a, a little bit more time going a couple of different places. But uh, uh, very simple, and I think this is a totally free app, but it's amazing how accurate it is. And uh, I know one place, you know, there were, we were hearing quite a bit of bird noise, and it it, it sorted out the individual birds. It, I think, uh, picked out four or five birds, and it has to do, you know, you can actually look at your phone, and you see the little frequency bars, and, and you can see how, and I, it's probably, you know, a good deal of AI in there that makes it happen, but we found that to be both really accurate and really interesting, and I, I know you enjoy birding as much as we do. It was, uh, uh, again, it, just just a really interesting thing to put on your phone and have there for next time somebody says, hey, what bird is that? Uh, it actually works. Well, I will definitely get that. The one I use is called Picture This, and it's mm-hmm. uh, you know, mostly for plants, but it's extremely accurate. It costs, it, it's uh, not free, it's $30 a year, but uh, uh-huh. it's... Um, it's really worth it if you got something really strange to identify that you have never seen before. I, the only time I've seen it pick up at all is when you're looking at something that has a, a sim, very similar look to some other plant. It'll sometimes get mixed up a little bit, but uh, on things that are exotic and things that are very uh, out of the ordinary, it's just about 100% accurate. Yeah, we've I'd, I'd, I'd knock it down to maybe 95% because we tried it on a number of things. And some of them it just says, you know, unable to identify. But there, there were just a handful of things that uh, just simply, you know, weren't right. But, uh, again, I don't know how anything can work as well as it does. But that's, that's the best one of what uh, we've seen as far as uh, plant identification apps. But... Uh, it's uh we we didn't find it to be a hundred percent, but uh, uh it was pretty good. Boy, talking about plants, the one thing I can see why we get customers all the time wanting to know why we don't sell more hostas and things, and people that you know that have lived up north, I can see why they are in love with those plants because we saw truly, I think, the prettiest hostas that I've I've ever seen, and we've seen we've seen them in Pennsylvania and some other places, but. Golly, there's some gorgeous varieties out there, and it's such a shame they won't grow here, or won't grow well here. But uh, and even uh, when they do grow, they're they, they're snail bait, so yeah, it, they've got a lot of problems. Yep. Well, it's always a pleasure to take a little time on Saturday mornings, and um, 
Uh, I just, we can't thank you enough. Still love DirtDoctor.com. It's the absolute best thing on the Internet. Do you have anything new coming up, anything additional that we should tell people to be watching for uh, they're going to see on DirtDoctor.com in the near future? Now I'm just trying to update a bunch of stuff, and uh, the uh, column that we put on DirtDoctor.com now is, in most cases, I'm finding some entry that I've got that's not thorough enough. For example, I was talking about edible flowers last week mm-hmm. and uh, looking specifically at Althea. <clears throat> I didn't even have the information um, on the <clears throat> entry on Althea that the petals were like any hibiscus edible mm-hmm. and good to use in herb teas and things mm-hmm. like that. So check check all that out. We've got something new going on on the website all the time, and the newest stuff will be up there in that right-hand corner. And that's uh, a good thing. Page. Unlike a book, you can go back and update it and add to it, and it's not like, gee, I wish I'd said that. <laughs> and so, well, just know that you, all our listeners down here, are just almost a daily thing. People talk about how much they've benefited from it. So uh, tell well, the staff good. up there and that uh, that everybody down here really appreciates your work and theirs, and uh, I'll look forward to doing this again with you next week. We'll do that, and if anybody gets any more information about the drones and what all's going on uh, about that in Texas, let us know. We want to stay on top of all that. Absolutely. Enjoy it, Bob. See you next week. You guys have a great week, Howard. Thank you so much. Stay out of the sun, and uh, we'll talk next Saturday. Okay. All right. Well, goodbye. It's uh, We've got about 25 minutes left in the show. Time for a few more phone calls. Uh, you know the number, 210-599-5555. I'm sure Jimmy's got a commercial to run back there, and we'll be right back. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, uh, back to gardening here with just a few minutes left in the show. We'll have at least a couple of callers. Looks like we'll talk to Teresa and then to Faye. Uh, good morning, Teresa. Hi, Bob. If you want your amaryllis to rebloom, to do something with them in August? Well, this is a time of year that we need to start forcing them into dormancy uh, because they have to go fully dormant. Um, it could be August. It could be, you know, we've still got another six weeks at least. But you just basically want to start withholding the water and uh, let them go dormant, let the foliage die back, uh, and then let them stay dormant. I'm sorry. You don't cut it. You don't cut it back. It just dies because it doesn't get water. That's correct. That's correct. I, if you if you just cut it back, it'll just try to put on more more foliage, and that doesn't achieve the purpose of having them. You know, go into their metabolism actually changes as they go dormant, and some of the different things that are produced within the plant, things that initiate the flowering process next spring, that's not going to happen just by cutting them back. So, no, you actually force them into dormancy. You'll find that the leaves die back. And if you take them out of the pot, you'll find that at least a portion of the root system dies back. So that's what we do this time of year. And then when you start watering them or whatever you're supposed to do to revive them, when you're ready to revive them, you do that about 
and it really a little bit depends on variety and also you know it's i think part of it's just luck as far as weather goes but then you want to go back to watering about eight to ten weeks before you would like to have them bloom if you time all this just right uh, i mean you can have them in bloom uh, for christmas you can have them in bloom for Valentine's Day, you can uh, you can choose the time that you want them, but from the time you resume watering till the time that you have a good bloom spike formed on most varieties of amaryllis is going to be somewhere like eight to ten weeks. Now, hyacinths, paper whites, things like that may be different, but uh, amaryllis, uh, it's usually eight to ten weeks, or maybe let's say okay. six to ten weeks, because there are lots more varieties out there than there used to be. But maybe somebody will bloom here. Okay. <laughs> everybody's everybody's always looking for more color out there and amaryllis are just amazing things and uh they again are. i mean there's so much fun to watch they grow an inch or two a day or more sometimes and if you yeah if you take care of them they reproduce you can have one big bulb in three or four years you can have you know eight or ten bulbs growing together in a pot and just there's nothing much more spectacular than an amaryllis with eight or ten bloom spikes open at one time. The one thing that's interesting, and I don't have any explanation for it, is why sometimes they change color. Because I've seen, and having having seen them grown for more than one season, sometimes the second year, the third year, they're a totally different color than they were the first time around. And uh, if I figure that one out, I'll let you know. Did you plant more than one in a pot, or you mean the bulb itself multiplies? Bulb multiplies. Oh, that's yeah. what I did like about hostas. They multiply. Oh, <laughs> yeah. They multiply. <laughs> Absolutely. But, no, they'll, they'll form a little bulb. Normally, it takes about uh, two years for the little side bulbs to become big enough to bloom. But uh, once they've formed and gone through that first season's growth, they don't have to be left attached to the big ones you i mean you can if you want you can just let the pot get fuller and fuller up to a point but uh you know if you do some people actually take them out and just store the bulbs while they're in their dormant uh, phase uh you can separate the small bulbs off and just replant them separately but expect it'll take you a couple of years before them to get uh, mature enough to bloom but uh they they certainly do they certainly do multiply okay my neighbor has them in her yard, and she doesn't do a thing to them, and then they rebloom. I don't know how that happened. Well, that's a different, um, high, a different amaryllis. Probably uh, are the ones that you're seeing. Are they red, red color? Yes, and I think I've given her those. So, but they she well, does, she has more of a green thumb. I guess. Well, no, I think those are probably actually something different. Those are what they call ah. American. Those are American amaryllis. Uh, that particular one variety is probably called Amaryllis Johnsoni, and uh, it is more cold-hardy and uh, typically will perennialize. Uh, the ones with the great big flowers and the great big bulbs, those are more properly called Hippiastrum. They're, they look just like Amaryllis, but technically they're a little different, and they are not mm. as cold-hardy. So uh, anybody looking to have an Amaryllis, they can plant out on the flower beds and dependably have them come back year after year you want to look for one specifically this american amaryllis and like I say this uh, red one called johnson eye is by far the most common one and we could talk about those a long time they seem to be a little bit more susceptible to some virus diseases but uh, uh 
Uh, they do make a wonderful showy bed that comes into bloom when there's not a whole lot of other things in bloom. So very desirable. Well, thank you very much. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Robin. Thank you. And Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right, let's go ahead and talk to JT, and then we'll take our last uh, break of the show. Good morning, JT. Are you there? No, it's Faye. Oh, it's Faye. I'm sorry, looking at the wrong thing here. I'm sorry, Jimmy. Good morning, Faye. How are you today? Good morning. It's a pretty day over here, but still looking at that 100 plus. So, um, How's, your, how's so. your water supply? Are you guys in as much drought over toward Houston as we are across uh, the hill country and around San Antonio area? Oh, I, I, I sure would think so. We have a well. It's not a real deep well. And mm-hmm. so when it, in fact, I think I've talked to you about this, but it gets um, uh, all, it, it's not really, we don't drink out of it for, sure. the, you know, for us anyway, but it gets all kinds of uh, stuff in it, whatever. And I wanted to ask you about that. In fact, uh, the, you know, it's, uh, if you drew a, a container, whatever's in there uh, is very visible. Well, so, and there can there can be different things and different reasons, and it also has to do um, with how the well was completed, as they say, how far down the casing was. Nowadays, we're, we being groundwater district, require well drillers to meet a little bit higher standard, but uh, a lot of the old wells, they only case the very upper part and if the water level in the well drops, uh, not necessarily from what you're doing, but from what your neighbors and other people pulling out of the same pool of water, and if that the amount of water in the well significantly drops, uh, oh, and again, this is a conversation we could have for two hours, but uh, as the hydrostatic pressure goes down and the water level drops, you get oxidation because the the well borers they call it that's used to having water on the rocky underlayment. Uh, all of a sudden, when you've got air on there, you've got all kind of minerals oxidizing and things like that, and uh, can lead to some cloudy water. Can lead to some pretty bad tasting water as well. But that's just one of many different things that can affect the the quality in the summer months. But uh, you know, it's. Uh, it's like if you had a pipe full of water, you're going to have just a small amount of rusting take place. But if you pull the water out and uh, yet the pipe stays wet, it's going to rust up in a big hurry for you. And that's sort of an oversimplification, but that's one of the things that can take place in your well bore in this kind of weather. So that answers that question. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. What are snakes doing now? Staying the- out of the heat. Snakes are very active morning and evening when it's cooler but uh, you're very unlikely to see a snake out because they can't regulate their body temperature, and excessive heat will kill a snake just like excessive cold will. So uh, you just you're not likely to see them out in the open. They will be in the shade if they're out at all in the middle of the day. But uh, they're certainly active morning and evening. So you know, take care. Okay. Well, that that thank you for all of that, and I sure appreciate your program. Well, it's always a pleasure to hear from you, and uh, so you don't go do your rain dance. Maybe you'll do a better job than we have, and we'll get a little bit more moisture <laughs> across this I'll part of the country. Sure Faye. Very <laughs> good. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. I, yep. Well, it's a pleasure talking. Uh, Jimmy, let's get our last break done of the show and have time for a couple more callers. I think we've got an open line or two if you want to dial 210-599-5555. 
South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Kind of winding down toward the end of the show today. Um, uh, my engineer was just telling me that uh, Martin Bomba will be on, of course, at 9, as always, but it will be a best-of show today. So certainly worth listening to, certainly worth learning from. But if you're planning to dial in and call and talk to Martin, have to have to wait till next weekend to do that. But uh, anyway, let's uh, get back to the phone lines. Uh, we're going to talk to Diane and then to... Chris, good morning, Diane. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. All morning. Every time you say the lines are clear, I'm getting, your callers are just like speed dialing. <laughs> well, it's good to hear your voice. Good to hear your voice. <laughs> okay, so I have an avocado tree that has only this, you know, I kept it alive during the freeze, kind of. Um, and it you know, it grew back, but it's never gotten more than about five or six inches tall, and I'm about ready to give up on it because the money I'm spending on watering and everything, it almost seems like it's not worth the effort. I'm just wondering what your opinion was. In a pot or in the ground? In the ground. Hmm. And it's it stayed, do you mean five or six inches or five or six feet? Inches. Wow, I that's my suspicion would be some very significant and severe root girdling on there. I would uh, I would wait certainly until you know much cooler weather. But if it's that tiny, I would bare root it and look it over real carefully and do any clipping and trimming. That that's about the only thing I can think of that would account for that type of stunting but uh i'll bet you however it started out it was at some point uh really got some roots wrapped around the trunk and that that like i said that's about the only thing i can think of but uh if you want to take your hose and wash away a little bit of the soil you might be able to tell something but uh i wouldn't do too much serious work on that until we do return to a little bit lower temperatures i might just buy a new one and leave it in a pot because this is my second one in the ground and you know between the two freezes and the two visits to hell and back uh you know <laughs> i'm, I'm <laughs> just not hopeful well so. i we've sort of had the same experience and but you know on the other hand before the freeze of 21 um there's and we get out sometimes and you know take a significant walk very early in the day around the nursery neighborhood and there was a fellow a few blocks from the nursery had a tree that oh i know was 15 20 feet tall and would have just dozens and dozens of avocados on it it seems like every year and um and so it can be done i wish i wish we knew what variety it was it did freeze and you know, go the way of the world in uh, 2021, but uh, I, I, I just, I know it can happen, but I don't know many people who've grown them successfully. Okay, well then, that's it. That's my decision has been made. It's going. It's going to mow <laughs> well, over if it if you can if can hear you, you know, I find that many plants, if you threaten them with pruning shears and uh, dire threats, sometimes they suddenly respond better. So. 
you know, maybe maybe you'll see a burst of growth on it, but if not, no, I think something I think drastic action needs to be taken. Okay, Bob, thank you so much. Y'all have a great day. Well, you do the same, Diane. It's always a pleasure to hear your voice and uh we'll have more fun things to share next time we get together. Hope it won't be too terribly long. I know, we need to catch up. Amen. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Okay, bye bye. Bye. All right, uh next in line, probably be our finish up the show with chris good morning chris good morning bob uh good morning quick question on quick question on stumps so i've got some some stumps from where i've cut down trees in the past and stuff like that and i know you you said something about maybe half inch uh holes with saltpeter down in them right uh is 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 that i mean how far down when i'm drilling that with that spade bit or whatever should i go down in the and how many holes should i put in that stump how um it, it really depends on uh um how big the the tree was i would space gotcha. your holes around the sump oh two or three inches apart and just as many holes okay. as it takes to accomplish that now i i will be you know very firm on one thing and uh it would be a good thing to do the first phase you it's sort of a two step process when you're using the so-called stump remover and uh the first of course is drilling the holes down in and uh the deeper the better i mean you don't have to use one of these 6 feet long uh spade bits like you know some of the security company use putting the wiring in but uh i i the, the bigger the stump the digger deeper i would try to drill and then you fill the hole with the potassium nitrate, and the potassium nitrate goes to work converting the woody part of the stump. Uh, you know, a really heavy, heavy tree like a live oak is going to take a lot longer than something like a hackberry or an ash or something like that. But what is actually happening is the saltpeter, the potassium nitrate, is converting the cellulose in the wood to something called nitrocellulose, which is uh, much more flammable. And you can certainly, you know, do this initial part of it any time you like. But the way you finally get rid of the stump is put some, uh, you know, a handful of charcoal briquettes on top of the stump, light them, and it just smolders down into the ground, and the stump is gone. But absolutely, the wildfire danger the way it is, don't even think about lighting a match out, you know, out in the woods, so to speak, uh, uh, it's just we're, we're just we're in a real dangerous position, I guess is the best way to put it. So uh, the initial phase, yeah, that's fine. Drill your holes, put your saltpeter in there, but don't even think about uh, letting that stuff. And it doesn't flame up or anything; it just smolders. But all the same, uh, I don't even want to have that going on around my property with the state we're in right now. Okay, so when when you're noticing, like after you do the saltpeter and all that stuff, and you let it sit for a month, two months, however long. To notice the time for doing the smoldering with the charcoal, should I just kind of like look for it to kind of look, if I kind of see it start to decay a little bit, then I know it, it's it'll, ready to... It'll get a little softer. Um, you gotcha. can use a screwdriver, you can use an ice pick to judge that. And uh, yeah, okay. when it just first starts to soften it, or, you know, again, you can go ahead and put a flaming piece of charcoal on top and just watch it, and uh, if it's not ready to go, it won't go, but... Uh, but again, it's uh, uh, I, I I just can't emphasize how what a what a dangerous situation we're in right now. Okay, now if the saltpeter, would you just get that from a local 
I don't know where where do you normally get that potassium nitrate from? If normally? if you want if you want pure potassium nitrate, uh, there's a place in San Antonio called Analytical Scientific uh, that has what they call reagent grade. But many nurseries will carry a product called uh, Stump Remover, and uh, it's just uh, not quite as pure, but it's it's just as good for your purposes and less expensive. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. Very good. I appreciate the call and a great, great question. Thanks, Chris. All right. Take care. Goodbye. Certainly. Bye. Uh, this is one other thing I'd remember. I've just got a minute left here in the show, so not enough time to take another call. But one thing I learned uh, from friends in the firefighting business, uh, the height of the flames of something burning will usually be about three times as high as whatever is burning. The whole principle behind this is if you're keeping your grass, especially if you have dry grass around your property, keeping it mowed down to a couple of inches tall, uh, should it catch on fire, you're going to have a manageable probably six-inch flame. If you let that dry grass get up two feet tall and it should catch on fire, you're looking at flames uh, head high. So one good reason, especially out in the country, especially if uh, your yard gets as brown as many of them are, keep that grass mowed down. Uh, it could really protect you in the event that a wildfire gets started. And uh, Texas Forest Service has uh, lots of tips on uh, uh, making your property more fire resistant, so to speak, and uh, certainly worth certainly worth uh, certainly worth taking a look at. But uh, the yard mowing is one thing that is really pretty simple and certainly is a really, really good idea, especially if you're out in a rural area. We'll be back doing this again tomorrow morning from 8 till 11. I'll talk to you then on KTSA Radio.